Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Uh, Kenna, do you want to do any housekeeping before we start the episode? Yes. First of all, thank you for listening. That's the first housekeeping. Yes. Uh, gratitude is the first gratitude. housekeeping. Also, thank you for dealing with the inconsistency lately. We swear that's not forever. I just had a sad family tragedy thing yeah. happen. And then we've had some other things. So it, it's not supposed to be like that. Yeah. Life is happening. Life is really happening to us right now. Um, But we're... Aiming to be more consistent again. Yes. And, you know, we will have the odd vacation here and there. And, True. you know, barring, barring illness and, uh, you know, emergencies, we should be back on our weekly schedule. Yeah. Uh, except for our usual summer break. Yes, except for our usual summer break in August because we're Leos and that's our birthday. That's our birth month. You can't take our birth month from us like that. <laughs> we need that or we'll die. Right? If we don't have a birthday month... We will wither and die. We will die. Yes, that <laughs> is accurate. One hundred percent. I forgot about the birthday. So month. every month except for August is is pretty consistent. Yeah, it is pretty consistent. Um, also, on Tuesday, are we doing Tuesday night book club over on Patreon? We are going back to book club this yes. week for our Patreon subscribers. We do two bonus episodes per month. It is two dollars a month. For those bonus episodes, we keep saying we're going to raise the price of our Patreon, but lucky for you all, we both have ADHD and keep forgetting to do it. But it will happen soon. We think. Probably. Well, it will. It, it will. It, it will. Uh, I'm guessing probably June. Okay. That's good. That's good. It's nice to have a goal. Yeah. June, it, it goes up. Okay. I like it. Goes it goes up. So, and also... Uh, yes, we have the Patreon and, uh, it is patreon.com slash pick me up. I'm scared for $2 a month. You can listen to all of our bonus content. We do have some bonus content and we are, like we mentioned, doing book club right now. So on Tuesday night, we'll be recording our book club and posting it probably that night, uh, for the book we've been reading, which is Against the Written Word by Ian Sononius. Yes. And you can write us messages. That's the place to get in touch with us. Yes. Kenna answers... The messages. I usually answer the messages, um, and uh, yeah, that's a place to get bonus content. Like we did an episode about finances and budgeting, and you get a link to like a Google Doc that helps mm-hmm. you with the budget stuff like that. So, and also soon we will have more merch. Oh, yeah. Kenna is designing <laughs> really good merch for the Patreon. It's, it's a hit. Everybody who's seen the preview has loved it. We think you're going to love it. It's going to be really good. Um, I have something. I got my first bad Apple podcast review, mm. but I'm doubling down on it. Uh, somebody got upset. I did a pop psychology episode while you're gone, Kenna. Uh, and I mentioned that repressed memories, as we think of them today, that's pop psychology. In the 80s, obviously, they were a huge part of the satanic panic. Yes. And what we found is that a lot of people were implanting false memories in children. Yes. So in the 90s, research psychiatrists did a lot of work studying if repressed memories were real. And they found no evidence indicating that repressed memories are real and especially not on this mass level that we think of them today. Like everybody who experiences trauma represses memories or something. These research psychiatrists were like, no, this is not real. If it happens at all, it is extremely, extremely rare. And we're not even sure it happens at all. 
And this started this whole thing in the 90s called the memory wars, where therapists who were doing a lot of um, repressed memory work with their clients were getting really mad at these research psychiatrists because these research psychiatrists are like, there's no evidence that what you're doing is real. And there is a ton of evidence that you are literally just inventing things and implanting mm -hmm. false memories in your patients' heads. So we talked about that. I talked about that on our pop psychology episode. And we got a bad review from a therapist who works with repressed memories. Uh-oh. I know, because 60 to 80% of therapists today do still believe repressed memories are real. Yeah, well, it's just like we talked about in our episode about crime mm -hmm. forensics. Yes. Oh, and the review said, you know, these are real. The U.S. court system even accepts them. And I thought, you know, the U.S. court system also accepts bite mark analysis. Which, which is, not is not real. And blood splatter. Yeah. Even... Even fingerprints yes, are suspect. They are. And, and like the guy who like was uh, like he was, uh, what was he? He was like in the US, he was like an intelligence officer or something. And they're like, you were in Spain at this bombing that your fingerprints yes, are there. And he's right. like, no, I was like in Oregon or something. And they're like, no, your fingerprints are everywhere. And he's like, what? Yes, this is totally real. This was on our episode, ACAB includes uh, quirky geniuses. <laughs> in the crime lab or something like that's the name it's a great episode but yeah so i did get that review from that person who was part of the 60 to 80 percent of therapists who still apparently do believe in repressed memories and you know the person left the review was like you know stay in your lane you should have interviewed a therapist and i just want to remind everybody the sources for all of our episodes are in our show notes yeah, I didn't, we don't interview people. It's not an interview podcast, but there are links to research studies done by psych research psychiatrists, mm -hmm. multiple people who have spent their lives dedicated to this thing, trying to disprove the prevalence of repressed memories. You know, and some people say they, again, they do happen, but they're extremely rare. But many of these research psychiatrists who've devoted their lives to studying this are like, there is no evidence about this. And comma, furthermore, we think it's harmful. That, yeah. that the belief in this is so widespread. And now they are also trying to get a specific form of amnesia removed from the DSM because they're like, this is just a repackaging of these repressed memories we know aren't real. But then how will soap operas happen? I mean, it is a really good plot <laughs> device. It's a great plot device. Soap operas will no longer be able to exist without amnesia and repressed memories. It's true. Um, I mean, I think the interesting thing about what the research psychiatrists say about memory, though, is they're like, you're, we all know this, your memory does not work like a video camera. It's not like you pull up a memory, you replay it, and it's exactly right. So this, the main thing about the repressed memories isn't so much the idea that you would forget things. We forget things all the time. We misremember things. Yeah. It's the idea that something could happen that would suddenly make you remember something you experienced out of nowhere in complete detail. Yeah, I mean, sometimes my sister would be like, remember so-and-so who we went to high school with? And I'm like, no. Yeah. And then I, like, see them, and I'm like, dang, you're right. I did go to high school with them. Yeah, our memories are just, they're fluid, they're fallible. We remember things, we forget things, you know. So it's not to say you won't you won't forget things sometimes or you won't remember things or you won't remember things wrong. It's just this idea, you know, the satanic panic style idea of repressed memories that all of us are walking around having blocked out horrific trauma and then at the right suggestion, the power of suggestion will cause us to recall it 100%. Like, 
no, we don't we don't have evidence suggesting that's real. And research psychiatrists have a lot of evidence suggesting this is not real and harmful. And that is why if anybody's interested in looking into that more, if you look up the memory wars anywhere, you will see this kind of battle between these research psychiatrists and the therapists who still really, really believe in this holdover thing from the 80s. Yeah. Also, that podcast you're wrong about has a lot on the satanic panic and false memories. Yes. Also, another podcast have, has a, some episodes about the false memory is uh, American Hysteria. Mm-hmm. There's another one called, I believe it's Conspirituality does an episode about uh, falsely implanted memories and yeah. an episode about uh, Teal Swan. It's a very interesting topic. So I just wanted to put that out there in our housekeeping. I'm doubling down on it. I'm not a research psychiatrist. I go where the science goes. And since the 90s, the science has said, no, this is not real. And you know, if something comes out tomorrow that's like, no, we think it's real, I'll change my mind then. But as it stands now, no, we're going with the science. The science says it's not It's not. A, it's not a thing like we think it's a thing. Um, anyway, so do you have anything else you wanted to add in for housekeeping? For housekeeping, um, I think that's it. Just, you know, if you want more of us. You Who can, doesn't? <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2 a month, you get more. More of us. Um, also, maybe I'll post tonight on our Patreon the newest thing I impulse bought from an Instagram ad. <laughs> We'll keep it a secret for now, but I'm looking at it, and it's glorious. It is very glorious. Yeah, so if you if you followed us on Patreon before, you heard all about how uh, during, during peak COVID lockdown, my allowance all piled up, and I suddenly had $500 in my allowance account for not leaving my house for months at a time, and I used it to impulse buy a tabletop composter from an Instagram wow. ad, the Lomi. That Wild. was the last one I did. So, <laughs> mm, you know, I'll post my next exciting Instagram ad purchase complete with review. I'll review it, too. Wow. On our Patreon. Wow. I think it's a good one. I think it's exciting. I think it's thrilling. I'm going to say this purchase is thrilling. Yeah, it's better than, it's probably um, better than my last purchase. Do you want to say what your last Instagram ad purchase was? Oh, my last Instagram ad purchase. I don't know if I got anything off. Oh, I did get something on Instagram. What? It was, it was a Kiromi uh, cooler mm. by like one of those little hand igloo coolers. And it was that like a Hello cute. Kitty one. Yeah, that sounds really and cute. And I bought a Hello uh, Kitty like igloo cooler. That sounds adorable. Yeah, it was honestly, it was more expensive than it should have been. But, you know, I needed a little cooler. Sometimes you need a little pick-me-up from a purchase. Yeah, but that was the retail therapy. That was the last thing I bought. I think it may have been one of the only things I bought off Instagram. That's a pretty good one. I feel like a lot of people buy things from Instagram ads and they're like, yeah, it never came. Mm. You know, it's like very scammy. Well, I figured that Igloo Cooler, like, is probably pretty legit since you see them in, like, Target and stuff. Totally. um, Oh, wait, no. I bought yoga pants. Oh, I like that. Off an Instagram ad because they were like on mega sale. That's pretty good. And I needed yoga pants and shorts. Very but useful. I'm not saying the company unless they want to pay me. Yeah, that's good. Um, I've been getting some really interesting targeted ads lately across all my social media, like Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> I've been like, okay, something weird is happening with my Googling. I am going to blame the podcast. I'm going to say the things <laughs> I Google for the podcast have to be the reason I'm getting these ads. My targeted ads um, include experimental ketamine treatments. Cool. Um. A quiz and an app to let you know if you drink too much. 
Cool. Uh-huh. And then also uh, Scientology. Whoa. I'm getting a lot of Scientology ads. Um, you know, it's funny because I used to live across the street from an ever from Scientology. From the big blue building, the iconic Hollywood blue building. Yeah, I lived right around the Scientology part. And um, all their billboards are just like, curious. And I like, am. Yes, I am like, curious. <laughs> but like, that's how they reel people in. Also, they have their own TV channel. Did you know this? Oh, no, I did not know this. Yeah, it's like in... Uh, Hollywood. Wow. They also have a, like, a museum. Um, Lizzie uh, did think it would be interesting to go to the museum. Uh, I, it's, like, against psychiatry, Yeah, they they really hate psychiatrists. <laughs> and one time my friend tell. was like, dude, I went to this really cool museum. It was free, and I learned all about how, like, uh, like, pharmacists are trying to take over the world. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, they and didn't And she's like, know. they give you, like, this free book at the end. And I was like, dude... Mm. <laughs> You just got, um, what's the word? Not recruited. What's the word? Where, like, a religion gets you? Uh, oh. It's not. I don't know. It's Maybe not recruited. But Maybe I was recruited. just like, I was like, we were like, I think that's Scientology. And she's like, nah, no. <laughs> and then later she's like, yeah, I think that maybe was. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely Scientology. Uh, anyway, so tune in next week to see if Madeline becomes a Scientologist from Twitter ads. <laughs> I'm going to place my bets and say probably not after you do all the research. Probably not, although I do love science fiction. And it's uh, a very, it's the most sci-fi uh, kind of spirituality we have, I think. Uh, I would beg to differ and that Heaven's Gate is the Heaven's sci-fi. Gate was very sci-fi. <laughs> I watched that whole documentary and Wow. I mean, Heaven's Gate was interesting because we were alive when it happened. I remember, I think I was in, like, fourth grade or something because it was all over the news with the Nikes. Because they They showed the Nikes. They had to discontinue those Nikes. They literally, this is, if you're not familiar, this is a cult that tragically ended in mass suicide. It was very, very, very tragic. But this is how fucking unhinged the 90s were. Kenna and I are in second and third grade, third and fourth grade or some shit. They, we literally watched the news and they went into this house where these people had recently died and filmed their corpses and put them on the news. Just yeah. on like primetime news. Because they were all wearing like matching tracksuits with right. Nikes because they were like, they needed to be prepared for the spaceship. And yes. like the thought was that the comet hail bop had a spaceship behind it to which they would ascend to a higher And plane. not to make light of the situation, but as a kid, you're just like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, just all wild. over the news, like those Nikes everywhere. Everywhere. And, <laughs> and we just watched this. And so then, like, they had to discontinue these black Nikes. Yeah, I mean, this They're is. They're worth a fortune on eBay if you find a pair. This is one of the main reasons I think millennials are so traumatized. I think it started before the, the Great cycles. Recession. The news cycles were it horrifying. It is wild, like, all the, the stuff from the media of our childhood, like Lewinsky, OJ Simpson, uh, who is the Amy. Fisher? Uh, Fisher. Amy Fisher. Uh, and, uh, God, so many, like... Yeah. Just a lot of, like, I would say a lot of slut-shaming. Oh, yeah, for sure. And a lot of just, like, just... Cause there was carnage. All, a lot of carnage Yeah, and a lot of just, like, shit that, like... I mean, I think the media is bad now, but, like, I feel like... I mean, it was... Man, I don't know if it was worse then or now, but it was, like, the beginning of, like where we are now. <laughs> yeah, it was hyper sensational. Okay, anyway, so that concludes our housekeeping section. <laughs> this is a long and rambling fun our one. Our prologue. Yes, and um, 
I guess that means we can officially start the episode now. Yeah. So. Is there something you want to ask me? I think there might be something I want to ask you to start the episode, Kenna. <laughs> it's kind of a fun one. Okay. Okay. All right. Kenna, uh-huh. have you ever known a rich person? Uh, I like mean, an actually rich person. Actually rich. I mean, like, know of? Yes. Uh, close friends with? Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I feel like it's like one of those things where, um, okay, like, I feel like if you're in the DIY punk scene, like some sort of subculture, there's a lot of like different people of different economic backgrounds, weirdly. So sometimes you don't know who is rich and who is not. That is totally true. Because I remember, we didn't really have rich people in Fresno where I grew up. But I do remember there was this kid who was like, the most punk, punk rocker, punk, 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 punk. And then I didn't like him because he was an asshole and tried to start a fight with me in public. And then one day we were driving down the street, me and a bunch of my friends in their shitty car. And one was like, hey, hey, look at that house. And it was this huge fucking house, right? And they're like, that's his house. And I was like, what? He's fucking rich. Of course, I didn't know it then. He was just middle class. We were all just so broke. We couldn't tell what rich people were. And I think that's the thing I, like, still carry with me. Like, sometimes I, like, casually refer to upper middle class people as rich. But, like, they're not actually the rich. They're just upper middle class. I would, okay, this is my thing, like, even if someone makes like 200k even 1 million dollars a year to me that is not the 1% is probably like 500 dudes yeah and i mean like mostly dudes yeah like 500 dudes no this is what i was thinking i was like i don't think i've ever actually known a rich person i think i've only known upper middle class people and i was too broke to really understand the difference I know I've met rich people because I partied in Hollywood when I was a teenager. So I would go to these like mansion parties in the Hollywood Hills and it was always like some director, some celebrity, some Hollywood writer, but like the really successful ones, not the ones you see right now who are like protesting because they make like two cents per royalty check. No, we're talking people who wrote like blockbuster films like over and over and over again, huge mansions in the hills. These are really rare specific rich people and I remember I would go to parties at their houses sometimes and uh one time our friend David David who's done some bonus episodes and also the episode on the paranormal with me on our regular thing uh David broke some rich guy's fridge and I was like we are gonna get in so much trouble this rich guy is gonna make us pay for this fridge that's probably like a ten thousand dollar fridge and David was like what do we do and I was like I'm so mad at you right now we play it cool and we run away (laughs) that's what I would do I'd just be like Hey, like, I would just be like, we're just casually walking out the front. We're going to pretend that we're going to go smoke a cigarette or something. And we're just casually leaving. Yeah, that's what we had to do. But no, so I know I've been to rich people's houses, but I didn't, like, know them. I was literally just crashing their parties. Yeah, I feel, okay, even though in Hollywood, though, or, like, in L.A., like, sometimes people are house rich, cash poor. That is a major thing here. Because it's like people bought their house 20, 30 years ago because they had something big happen, but they've just been living in this house that now would be worth millions of dollars. But, the, you know, it's like, so you never really know if, or like you meet people who are like, act like Nepo babies, but they don't have any money on them for some reason. That, yeah, there's two things here. I think this is actually really interesting. This phenomenon, I feel like might be a strictly LA thing. What you were mentioning the first one, a lot of people will sell like, one script get one deal and then they'll use it to buy a house 
And it will be these houses that they bought, yeah, like 30 years ago, all in cash from this one deal, and then they never booked good work again. But they have this house. But they have this insane house. And sometimes you'll go places and the houses will be in total states of disrepair. Like, from the outside, they look kind of fine. You get inside, like, walls are crumpling, everything's And, like, the location is the most, like, beautiful beautiful, location. Expensive. But, but, like, because I've seen some houses, like, for cash sale, and you know that someone just, like bought this house and they were a producer in like the 70s and just hadn't moved since. Yes, this is totally a real thing. And then the trust fund kids is interesting because the reason why sometimes you meet rich kids who don't have money is because they live off trusts from their their parents. So like their parents set up a trust and the trust means usually it's managed by somebody like a wealth manager and the wealth manager will only allow the kids to take off like a 5% every single year to live off of from like investments so that the bulk, the balance remains untouched and it will just fund them forever. This is like rich people money management. So usually those kids will only get like Four grand a month to live off Which of. Which seems like a lot, but in it LA. Is a, it is a lot. It is a lot, but in LA, like, it's middle class. It's not rich. Right. And their parents will usually have other stuff. They'll have an apartment they live in. They or a car, you But know. these kids will just, like, blow through this money because they know they'll just get it next month forever, but they won't have it, like, on, on hand a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Or they, it's, like a, it's, like, yeah, a credit card, but they can oh, only yeah. use it for, like, certain stuff. Yes. How rich how rich families manage money with their kids is so interesting to me. And I feel like, yeah, you do kind of encounter that in, in L.A. Not and no lot, judgment on people who, you know, no judgment on... If I had rich parents, I would take their money all the time. Yeah, for sure. Like, I would totally be but, taking But, you know, I think it. in our mind we'd be like, oh, well, you should just have unfettered access to money all the time. But right. that's not the case. No, and different families handle it different ways. Sometimes the- you'll have parents who are, like, super rich, but they're like... My kid's going to bootstrap it, and I'm not going to help him out at all. Yeah, so their parents will be super rich, and they're like, yeah, I have to work, like, 40 hours, you know, like, I don't get any money from my parents. Right, or, like, I'm sleeping in my car even sometimes, and the car's, like, a 1998 Toyota, and you're like, bro, aren't your parents, like, super rich? And they're like, like, yeah. That's what blows, it's not like you, like, that's what blows my mind. It's like, you bring a kid into the world, and you have, like, all the resource, more resources than you need. And you're not going to give them to the thing that didn't ask to be born? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think, like, rich family money psychology is just so fascinating to me. There's probably all sorts of different, like, schools of thought for, like, how rich people are supposed to manage money with their kids, too. We should do an episode on that someday. Yeah, I think I, I don't, I feel like I listened to something, or maybe we were talking about in the parenting episode where, you know my memory. Yes. Where you, where, like, um, many times, like, you know, wealthier families will like will have like more like anguish where it's just like the kids aren't treated as nice like so it doesn't matter how much money you make or not that capitalism is actually not working for anybody even the rich because they're miserable yeah it's like your kids if if your kids aren't thriving that's a really bad thing yeah so yeah we've met like all these types of people obviously like you know parents have huge giant houses pay their kids rent but then also maybe like the kids went to public school still and they weren't like extremely wealthy they were just upper middle class in a way that seemed rich to me at the time or people like we talked about who like work in entertainment and have had like a few really well-paying gigs but then in between it's like feast or famine there's like nothing for years they have to make this money stretch a long time whatever I've also met people who have what seem like huge incomes to me like three hundred thousand dollars a year just for one person and that feels rich in a lot of ways they have a lot of disposable income but they're still not like billionaires right they're not like the rich yeah like I think of like 
the rich as like you know i'm sure there are people like the real rich like we don't know like we know like bezos and musk or whatever but like i'm sure like some of the top people like we have no fucking clue and there's and there's a reason yep totally um yeah and like I don't think, the more I think about this, I'm like, I don't think I've ever known a rich person. And I I think that my contact with rich people has been extremely limited, even living in a relatively wealthy place. I don't live on a rich side of town, obviously. But, you know, L.A., it's there's rich people here, and I don't um, know them. Oh, wait. I think I have actually uh, met or, or served, retail served, whatever, cashiered yeah. a billionaire. Oh, okay, yeah. The owner of Forever 21. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Amy? I don't remember, but um, I just... Wong? The Wong family, maybe? I don't remember, but I was working at a clothing store, at a vintage clothing store, and they came in and someone's like, that lady owns Forever 21. And I was yes. like, whoa! Like, yes. had no clue, so... I only kind of know she exists because uh, Drew, my partner who died, used to fight with her all the time. Whoa. He'd see her in public and he'd fight with her. They'd get in these yelling matches and stuff. Yeah, because apparently, yeah, they... I mean, like, they... They, I don't know. I don't know what Forever 21's deal is now, but someone told me. So I was like, whoa, that's probably been my closest contact yeah. with like a billionaire. Well, the first Forever 21 was on Figueroa in Highland Park. Yeah, forever. it's Fashion 21. It's gone now. It's gone? It's a different retail store. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So obviously, Kenna and I, we don't have a lot of exposure to the rich. We are purely guessing here. We are just guessing. So, but like, Kenna, if you imagine rich people, are there some like stereotypes about the rich that come to mind? Um, I mean, okay. I tried to watch Succession. I tried to watch an episode two and, and I, I could not get into I it. I couldn't get into people it. People love it though. I, I just cringed the whole time Me and too. I know that's the point, but I don't. I want to just, like, when I watch a show, I either want to feel something or not feel anything. But this, I just felt minor cringe. Yes. in between, I felt in between where I was like, eh, like, I just kept thinking about, like, God, these people are assholes. And that's kind of why I don't watch, it's always, okay, I, like, sometimes I'll watch, I, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, like, if it's on in the background of somewhere. But, like, it's just, like, I'm like, I know it's funny, and there are some funny parts of it, but it's also just so cringe, because these people are assholes. Like, yeah. And I know that that's the joke, I but feel I still like don't want to think about it. With Succession, my thing is it's one of those shows where everyone's like, it picks up after the first season, and I'm like, I'm not going to sit through an entire bad season to get to something that gets better. Yeah. It's got to be pretty okay from the jump. Not even good. I like a lot of bad shit, but, but Yeah. I feel like the little I saw of Succession is probably, like, the stereotypes about rich people. Okay, like, what kinds of things? Like, uh, like, I feel like one stereotype is that, like, it's actually, like, hard, like, rich people don't dress super flashy, but all their clothes are really expensive. Like, the row. Yes. Like, or, like, um... They don't really interact with the public at all. Like, yeah, that's an interesting thing. They're very isolated in their little rich people world. Because it's like someone's always like an assistant is always getting something. Mm-hmm. Like they always have a driver. Like um, they um, 
have pri- I mean private jets. Yeah, know? very private. I um, think about they like, don't do. Th- I mean, they don't do uh, normal stuff for themselves, like uh, laundry or right. <laughs> like a stereotype. No, I mean, I, when I mean, I some think, non-rich people don't do laundry either. That's true. Um, when I think about it, I think like a lot of the stereotypes. I think like cigars, suits, knowing congressmen, smoking clubs. Oh, they'd be like country oh. clubs. Yeah, they're like, oh, they're part of the West Maryland Vanderbilts. Right. We only do the East Maryland Vanderbilts, darling. <laughs> right. Things like and this. And they, they also talk like this for some reason. That's they the rich. They all have a rich person it's accent. From the, I only got that from The Simpsons. I think that's probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, they all talk kind of like the queen. Yes, they do. I think of like other like buzzwords. Like there are like some buzzy things I think about. Um, like I think about like shell corporations and offshore tax havens. Oh, yeah. Or... Um, Gosh, like, uh, yeah, all those words that don't mean anything to me, like, uh, I'm like I mutual know. funds. Yes, um, I know what mutual funds are. You don't know what mutual funds are? No. Oh, okay, okay. I will. I won't. I'm I won't tell you. for an episode on this. <laughs> okay. Bro. Okay. I'll teach you about mutual funds today. <laughs> um, but yeah, like shell corporations and offshore tax havens. You hear people talk about them a lot. And I realized I always just kind of, like, understood them to be legal ways for rich people to launder money and avoid paying taxes. But I realized I don't actually know how it works. And I also thought it was interesting that this is stuff that we all just kind of know rich people are doing. We know they have, like, rich guy lawyers and rich guy accountants who help them do all these rich guy sketchy things that aren't necessarily illegal but are probably amoral and like it's them quasi legal yeah and it's like them trying to get out of pulling their fucking weight in society and like paying their income taxes and shit and i realized like i know this stuff happens but it should probably be more shocking and sensational to me than it than i feel like it is yeah and I, weirdly i think it's just been like a part of the culture especially since we were kids during like reagan and stuff right like if you think about the 80s like oh what's that that movie that's like always be selling yes um uh, like Wolf or of wall street no 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 uh before that with oh. alec baldwin oh, oh fuck i can't think of is it. it boiler room no that has no. giovanni rubisi but like if you think about it like speaking of scientology scientologist and very hot Giovanni um, Rubisi? He cut in line and like at a lessons in front of me one time. So not a fan. Scientology behavior, I think, maybe. Yeah, he's entitled. <laughs> he cut in front of like six people waiting for green juice at the lessons. And he was like, oh, sorry guys. We were just like, fuck you, man. Well. So here's a lesson. If you're a celebrity, don't fucking cut in line. Unless you cut in front of me and you're hot like Giovanni Rubisi. No, no, he became not hot at he's that not, moment. Okay, okay, all right. I mean, I'm, I'm a... I'm a he was one of my first, like, celebrity crushes, so I'm having a hard time imagining him not being hot. He's a line cutter. He is no longer hot. Yeah, but, like, maybe, like, kind of like a, ew, but, like, hot. No. No? Okay, all right, all right. We I'm have different s- feelings about Giovanni Rubisi. <laughs> Do you like how I'm doubling You're down? You're doubling, yeah. No, um, but all of this shit actually did come out in a way that really laid out how all this money moving works in 2016. Oh, with the Panama Papers? The Panama Papers. Whoa, how did I know this? You knew it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Panama Papers. cool. Yeah. So, okay. So, Kenna, what do you know about the Panama Papers? You know what they are, obviously. Yeah. Do you know? Panama. Yeah, it's no. the Van Halen song. It's the, it's the piece of paper Van Halen wrote the song lyrics to Panama on. Done. Episode over. Episode over. Van Halen rocks. 
<laughs> but not Van Hagar. <laughs> no, fuck Van Hagar. I can't drive 55. No, sir. No, I mean, um, it's, it's a pretty good song. But basically, I feel like what the Panama Papers did is show how a bunch of super, super, super rich people. The rich, if you will. Like, the richest of the richies. Yeah. Like, basically hide their money from public scrutiny and from paying taxes. Like, exactly. I believe, like, even, um, like, Putin was, like, caught up in this and stuff. Putin's a really interesting one, actually. Yeah, but uh, I feel like... Like, people thought that, like, shit was going to go down. Like, and I don't know if shit went down. Yeah. Well, some shit went down. A lot of shit didn't go down. And one person died. Wow. All from this. Yes. Wow. Uh, Very tragically. Oh, no. So we're going to get, no, she was a good one. A good one died. Yeah, we lost a good one. I mean, yeah, no, for anyone. Yeah. For, yeah. I mean, you know, you're a little more sympathetic to the Richies sometimes than I am. Well, I think that, like, it's hard. I think, like, in our minds, like, I feel like we're talking about something, like, if you're just in the middle of the day eating a sandwich, like, having lunch on a weekday, you're rich. And I was like, no, the richest of the rich, probably we don't even see. We would never see that. We would no. never interact with except for serving them something. I don't even think I get hired at a place to serve rich people. I, I just, don't have the look for it. I feel like the, you know what I think I could maybe do, except for my seasickness, is, you know, Triangle of Sadness? Yes. I could maybe be, like, a, a person on a boat who's like, yes, I can totally get that for you. Yeah, I think you could. I see that for you. Um, yeah, well, the Panama Papers was all about these uber-rich people that we probably never interact with, never see, never encounter in our real-day lives. And, yes, the many, many ways that they try to keep their little money secret from the rest of us and put it in places where they can avoid accountability. They can do really sketchy things like bribe people from it. They can move it around without anybody knowing. And also, yes, majorly, so they can avoid paying taxes. So, basically, the way the Panama Papers came into being is that in winter of 2015, and based on all the documentation, I believe this is like January 2015 we're talking about, this German reporter named Bastian Obermeier got this call from someone identifying as John Doe, you know, just like the anonymous name people give for themselves. Yeah. Hello, I'm John Doe. Yeah. (laughs) So this John Doe asks Obermeier like, hey, are you interested in some data? Pretty vague, pretty ambiguous. And Obermeier is like, yeah, I could be interested in some data. Sounds like a drug deal. Yeah, but like, who are you? And the person's like, I am nobody. I am just a concerned citizen. And the reason why this person reached out to Obermeyer is because Obermeyer was part of this kind of small paper that was kind of focused on, um, you know, kind of like social justice-y, left-ish, pol- not super left-wing or anything, but you know, left-ish politics in Germany. So... It makes sense that this person contacted Obermeyer specifically because this is kind of like this kind of whistleblowing journalism stuff Obermeyer has some tangential experience with. So this person is like, look, if I give you this data, you have to report on it. That's the rule. I'll give it to you, but you have to promise to report on it because this data proves a lot of crimes have been committed and I need you to make this all public. So Obermeyer is like, okay, yeah, for sure. Obviously, if this is real, I'm going to report on the data. That's what I do. But if this is as intense as you're making it seem, like, why even take the risk? Like, aren't you worried your life's going to be in danger if this is as extreme as you're saying? And the guy is like, I can't tell you why I'm taking the risk without exposing who I am. But 
I can tell you this. I don't work for a government agency, uh, either directly or as a contractor. I never have. But I am really motivated by income inequality. So he's like, look, these documents show there's a bunch of rich people hoarding wealth. And these papers I'm going to give you are going to reveal how they're doing it. And all of this is contributing to the continued impoverishment of people around the globe and this growing income inequality that I really think is the most pressing issue on the planet that we're dealing with today. Basically, the rich are getting super, super fucking rich off our backs and someone's got to expose how they're doing this shit. And he says, this is a direct quote from the the informant. The informant says, there is just a mind-boggling amount of criminal activity going on here. So this guy ends up leaking a massive amount of documentation. We're talking like one of the biggest data leaks in history. 11.5 million financial and legal records. Whoa. To Obermeyer's paper, a German newspaper called Süddeutsche Zeitung, where Obermeyer was a journalist, yes, and one of the owners. So Wired describes this leak as emails, contracts, transcriptions, and scanned documents in total containing 4.8 million emails, 3 million database entries, 2 million PDFs, 1 million images, and 320,000 text documents. Whoa. So much data. And these documents were all showing how rich people around the world launder and hide their assets to avoid things like taxes, duties, customs, you name it. And usually the way these documents are showing this is done is by creating these dummy corporations, shell corporations, and transferring money around between them. Um, And then also these documents, yes, show massive evidence of corruption in all of this because why do you need to have dummy shell corporations to move your money around? Obviously, if you're evading taxes, but also if you're doing some sketchy shit with your money, you don't want getting tracked back. Yeah, because if you're above the board, you're just like, yeah, audit me. Here's all my stuff. Yeah. Right. So I want to make this part clear. I think we've all had friends who were super broke, who cheated on their taxes or underreported their income, right? Like, how many people have we known in our lives who worked under the table and got paid in cash? And, you know, I'm not mad at those people. I'm not talking about someone here who makes $30,000 a year and they don't report their income or pay taxes on it because they can barely afford to get by with the little bit of cash they have. This is like people who make hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year. Yeah, we are talking about billionaires who should be liable to the tune of millions and millions of dollars in taxes and other levied fees. And these are some of the most powerful people in the world networking together in corrupt ways to avoid accountability, do things like bribe and extort uh, to maintain positions of power, often political power, and do downright illegal things in the effort of making this all happen. Like this info drop, these the Panama Papers revealed 12 current or former heads of state being accused of this level of corruption. Not surprised. Yeah. So this ends up being massive, like everything this John Doe said it would be. And these documents, there were so many, and there's so much info that came about from this. Um, and some of the things that were turned up were really harrowing, like some facts that I was just like, whoa, right out of the gate. Eight billionaires own as much wealth as the world's poorest half of the population. Whoa. Yes. Uh, and we, I think we really need to take a second to process that. Like, eight rich people own as much as half of the planet? That is wild. That is even more than I thought. At um, least we got the numbers. We do have the numbers. Uh, <laughs> they got the nukes, though. They do. They control the big weapons, which is not great. 
It's, but, I you say know. that, though, but then I'm kind of like, wait, who would want to, like, it's really unlikely that someone would want to nuke someone. But then I say that being like, no one is bad. Yeah, but, like, the United States has. We're the only country who've actually used nuclear weapons on on another country. Do you think, yeah, do you think the U.S. would use nukes on itself? Yes, 100%. <laughs> yes. Not even a fucking question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> They're sure. like, we're getting California and we're getting the liberal coast. Yeah, no, 100%. Jeez, I, I don't want to think about it. Nothing about our country does anything logical or rational. It's all like impulse and like pride. Wait, have you seen The Dead Zone? Yes. This reminds me, that reminds me of The Dead Zone. Yeah. With Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Christopher Walken. Yeah. Highly recommended movie. Yeah. Um, another thing that this showed is that, yeah, the world's richest 1% own more assets than the remaining 99% combined. So when you hear that 1%, no, they literally have as much as but, the rest. But, like, people think the 1%, like, oh, someone making six figures. No, 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 no. no. Someone no. making, like... Like, trillions of dollars. Yes. <laughs> um... Yeah, also tens of trillions of dollars, speaking of trillions of dollars, are being hidden worldwide in offshore accounts to avoid taxation. That's the amount of money we're talking about here. Tens of trillions of dollars. And uh, also the fact that over $900 billion was stolen from developing countries in the year 2011 alone due to crime, corruption, and tax evasion. Whoa. That's like, um, remember in Iraq where just a billion dollars went missing? missing? Yes. Of American money. A tax pay- taxpayer money. And like we pay unmarked, our taxes. And unmarked bills. Yeah. I'm like, I'm fucking pissed because I'm like, okay, so I had to have like 25% of my paycheck fucking taken out of for this yeah and so the ceos of raytheon and northrop grooming could get rich 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 i'm also surprised more people aren't just infuriated by the military budget all the time because we we literally know very clearly this is like a tangent but we know that our tax money mostly goes to the military budget if we're picking one thing that has the most uh you know attention financially and that the military budget, so much of it, is literally us buying overinflated equipment for way more than it's worth just so the CEOs who are friends with our Congress people can post huge profit and become, like, multimillionaires. And then, like, every single year, millions and millions of dollars. And then our Congress people, when they leave office, go work for these companies. But, Madeline, toilet seats cost $10,000. It's maddening. <laughs> like, you hear about the $510,000, $50,000 toilet seats? Yeah, there's, seats. like, all this stuff that you're just like, what? <laughs> like, the thing that gets me, because it's, like, the simplest and most easy to understand, is just, like, a $20 screw or, like, a $20 nail. And you're like, it's not even a special nail. It's, like, a nail. No, they do that so each year they can get more and more money because if they don't spend it, they... They get less budget. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. So, anyway, so all of this stuff is just the start, though, of what is kind of found in the Panama Papers. So along with releasing these documents, this anonymous whistleblower, right, released a manifesto. Because remember, they're super motivated by income inequality and wealth inequality. And this John Doe is like, income inequality is one of the defining issues of our time and it affects us all over the world. And he goes on to say, look, the rich are not playing by any rules. The middle class and the poor, though, we have to make up for it. We are being extra scrutinized, extra studied, extra fucked with, and there is no moral fabric holding society together anymore. Uh, He even goes as far as to say, like, this isn't even capitalism anymore. This is rich criminals holding the entire world hostage. Um, But also, like, I don't think my guy read Marx because, like, duh, that's the inevitable extension of capitalism. Well, to me, it's just, like, after watching uh, a little bit of The Sopranos, I'm like, oh, like, 
capitalism is run kind of like the mafia. Yeah, totally. Um, but I do love this guy's naivety. He's like, the rich people are writing their own laws that benefit them and not doing anything illegal, but somehow all the systems are still benefiting them in a way that aren't benefiting poor people? This can't be capitalism. And you're like, you literally just described capitalism. You just described capitalism. Yeah, because it's like... Well, that's funny because even Adam Smith, who is like, you know, quote, the inventor of capitalism, was like, but we need laws in place for the poor. Like, he even was like, but we need some systems in place. No one ever says that because he's just like left unchecked, like two guys are going to own everything. Well, that's what we're heading towards. And then eventually just one guy. And then the one guy needs to get rid of his workforce. So he just pays all robots. So it's just one guy and a bunch of robots. Right. Totally true. Um, but yeah, this guy, you know, he was like, the whistleblower was a little naive. He's like, I thought capitals would be better than this. Uh, which like, I'm like, that's so cute. That's so cute. You thought this wasn't the inevitable extension of capitalism. Oh, uh, it reminds me of the anarchists. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he says all this though. And he's like, look, the wealth hoarding, the egregious wealth and income gaps, they keep growing. And all of this is obviously because of massive corruption. So he points out this one specific law firm. All of these documents, it turns out, come from this one specific law firm. And he's like, this law firm is so important when we're talking about global corruption and global inequality because they've used all of their influence to not only help people skirt the laws or do things of dubious legality, set up these shell corporations, evade taxes. They also have so much influence that they are writing the laws themselves sometimes in some regions Banding the laws that do exist worldwide. And the name of this law firm is Mosek Fonseca. Mm. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. So this data dump is the complete archive of all of the records of Mosek Fonseca from 1977 when they opened to like 2015. Whoa. Yes. And uh, Mosek Fonseca is a... Panamanian law firm and that is why these documents are called the Panama Papers oh interesting yeah and it's so funny because I actually while doing the research for this episode I watched on Netflix there's like a scripted show movie kind of about this with Meryl Streep in it called The Laundromat and they said this firm's name so many times and even now I'm like am I remembering saying it wrong it might be Mossack Fonseca Mosak Fonseca, something like that. But um, yeah, the the spelling of it is M-O-S-S-A-C-K-F-O-N-S-E-C-A. So people do pronounce it differently based on their accents and where they're from because it's important to know that the Panama Papers, it's a global thing. So you have people from all over talking about this. Mm. But the reason why this firm is called, you know, Mosak Fonseca, which is how I'm going to say it, even though people say it differently, is that these are two guys. One guy is Mosak and one guy is Fonseca. And both of them were lawyers. Makes sense. Yeah. So they <laughs> formed this law firm in Panama in 1977. And by 2015 and 2016, when the story was breaking, they were the fourth largest provider of offshore services in the world. Whoa. Not even the biggest, though. So everything Whoa. we're about to hear, there were three guys bigger than this. What the fuck? Yes. And they employed 600 people in 42 different countries around the world. And they had over 30 offices, formal offices set up worldwide. They had some in the British Virgin Islands, in Switzerland, in China, and obviously in Panama. And they advertised their global connections and solutions for wealth management. 
Sounds like the mafia. Very, very mafia. And reporters are like, yeah, their real business, though, is just secrecy, which also kind of sounds like the mafia. Yeah. Yeah. Tony Soprano. And the way it worked is that for relatively low amounts of money, we're talking like a thousand euros, you could buy an offshore corporation in Panama that would then be run by a chain of different people, different connections to obscure your role in it. And then you could use sometimes this shell company that owns another shell company that owns another shell company to move money around in these opaque ways to avoid paying taxes when it's owed or, you know, any sort of fees, anything like that. And the clients for Mossack Fonseca would include rich individuals as well as corporations and banks. Mm. So the 10 banks that requested the most offshore companies for their clients, like they would go to them as an intermediary, was uh, Experta Luxembourg, uh, Bank J. Safra Saracen Luxembourg, Credit Suisse, we've all heard of that, in the Channel Islands, that's a big rich guy bank, HSBC Private Bank in Monaco, HSBC Private Bank Swiss one, UBS AG, uh, Coots & Co. Trustees, Society General Bank and Trust in Luxembourg, Lance Baskey in Luxembourg, and Rothschild, Guernsey. Wow. Sorry, I just heard Lance Basque Bank. <laughs> Lance, like, from <laughs> Lance in- Banky. Lance Banky. No, like, <laughs> from NSYNC. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Whoa, this Lance fucker. Bass's no, bank. he's actually our favorite NSYNC. Um, actually, we will get into two shocking celebrities who were involved in this. What? Yes, yes. This episode's going to have it all. It's going to have celebrity gossip. It's going to have drama. It's going to have hatred of capitalism. It's going to have corruption. And Panama. Pan- and Van Halen. <laughs> um, so if you want to know how legal all this is, it was technically legal most oh, of it. Oh, I'm yeah. fucking sure. Yeah, but most people did still know it was sketchy and really riding the line. Well, to me, okay, here's the thing. I feel like you can get in trouble for anything if the government wants to get you. Yes, totally. I mean, like Fred Hampton, literally murdered by the government. Yeah, so, like, you know, like, if a cop wants to pull you over, they will figure out a way. They're going to find a reason. They'll be like, you went over the yellow line by two centimeters. You went blah, blah, blah. So to me, these people it's probably like, have friends in government. So they're like, we could choose to prosecute you or we couldn't for any. But if the government wants to find a way to fuck with you, they fucking will. No, I was just thinking it's like Jay-Z 99 problems when he gets pulled over by the cop and the cop's like, son, do you know what I'm stopping you for? And then he's like, well, you're doing 55 and a 54. Exactly. Okay, they'll get you. They'll get you if they want to. So these people obviously have the benefit of, like you said, knowing a lot of people in government. People don't want to get these people. It's messy. It's complicated. And usually these are their friends doing favors for them. And Yeah, so it's deals. like, they're like, yeah, it's probably technically illegal, but it's only illegal if someone busts me for it. Right. And who wants to bust me? But still, a lot of the rich people who were using these services, they were a little scared because they just knew it was sketchy. So there was this person named Sandro uh, Hungarter who was the Zurich boss of Mossack Fonseca. And a lot of his emails uh, were involved in the leaks. Like you could see a lot of these emails, right? So in one email, he was recounting to a colleague a conversation he had with Contact who worked for Global Trust Advisors, which was a financial service firm based in Luxembourg. So the Contact told him like, oh, my Italian clients are going to desperate lengths to avoid being caught. She cited the reduction in offshore business uh, being due to pressure from the Italian government chasing clients. And she had heard that the fiscal authorities would look at what car you drove, if you go to Switzerland, whatever, and was like, hey, clients are really scared because Italy's cracking down. Typically, 
she said, you know, clients would cover their trail by using a Panama company to buy a Luxembourg company, which would in turn buy an asset in Italy. Mm. Right. But in this email, it also was revealed in the dialogue that clients were so afraid that they often used nicknames when calling the police. Or calling the police. When uh, calling the office. Sorry. Mm. Because they wanted to avoid the police. So what Mossack Fonseca ended up doing is they offered a virtual office service for all of the super scared customers. So they were like, hey, for $1,500 a year, we'll set up a fake email account using the domain at tradedirect.biz, right? Very like, who knows what this is? And then wealthy clients could correspond with this fake email address, right? Using anonymous names that they invented. So there would be absolutely no trace of either the company you were talking to or who you were. Yeah, I would use Hugh Jackman. Oh, that's really good. Um, Do you know what names people did use? What? Uh, one person used Isaac Asimov. One person <laughs> used Daniel Radcliffe. And there is really a lot of Harry Potter in here. Somebody else also just used Harry Potter as their name. Uh, somebody else used Winnie the Pooh as their name. Ooh. Yeah. There is like a lot of... We're, this is not the first Harry Potter Yeah, we'll I would either do Hugh Jackman or Amanda Hug and Kiss. Oh, that's good. Another Simpsons reference. I don't know why I've been thinking about The Simpsons lately. Yeah. I haven't watched it in years. I haven't either. Um, the fake Isaac Asimov, for example, was actually just this wealthy lawyer from Barcelona named Gabriel Predis, who had this $21 million that he was storing in six different offshore accounts. And he uh, ended up standing trial in Spain for tax crimes, but was fully exonerated. And yeah, there's no suggestion what anything he did was actually illegal, just kind of sketchy. They also would uh, advise clients, like, look, here's how you can buy property without anybody knowing. And the way they would tell them is with a five-page PowerPoint presentation that they would email to you. And Just five pages. Yeah, they're like, here's five pages on how to do this. They're like... I wonder if they used the Clippy. Oh, my God. That's Microsoft, <laughs> right? PowerPoint. Yeah, maybe. Um, they were like, yeah, you're going to turn liquid investments into cash. Then you're going to put the funds in an escrow or third-party account. And then you're going to transfer them to this offshore company. And the offshore company is going to buy the property for you. And when you watch that movie, The Laundromat, on Netflix, the the character played by Meryl Streep, she kind of figures out that this company exists and that they're doing all this because she gets outbid on a house she wants. But the the person buying the house she finds out is a corporation, not a human. And this is where she starts digging. She's like, well, how is this company buying this house in all cash? Who are these people? What's happening? Mm-hmm. So it is a pretty good movie if you want to watch it. Um, I feel like without the context of knowing everything about the Panama Papers and Mossack Fonseca, you wouldn't really get what was happening. It was like a little hard to follow, but it is still enjoyable. So all of this started, right, with Mossack and Fonseca, the two dudes. And they are super fucking interesting and like not in like a positive way. So one of the founders, Raymond Fonseca, graduated from law at Panama University and then spent six years working for the UN in Geneva. He wanted to be a good guy. Uh, And then eventually he was like, this is not worthwhile. Being the good guy does not pay. So he returned to Panama City and he started his own legal business, which is one secretary back in 1977. That same year, he ended up joining forces with the other half of this equation, German Panamanian lawyer Jürgen Mossack. Mm. Mossack has a real fucked up backstory. Uh Yeah. Uh, his dad was straight up Hitler youth, like not even joking, not an exaggeration, like in 1939 in Germany. Whoa. Yes, he was Hitler youth and he ended up fighting with the SS until March of 1945 
when he was captured on the Western Front and sent to a prisoner of war camp. So his dad was a straight-up Nazi. Whoa. Yes. And his dad escaped the POW camp. He was rearrested in Germany in 1946. And when they caught him, they were like, this guy's still spouting all this Nazi ideology, just Whoa. like through and through Nazi Nazi. Uh, and then two years after the recapture in 1946, he apparently was released from the prisoner of war camp. And Mossick was born just two years later. Whoa. Yes. So at age 13, he moved with his family first to the U.S. and then to Panama. And we know that actually a lot of ex-Nazis ended up in Panama. Interesting. Yeah. So back to the 70s, though. That was just like real weird and worth including. As global trade was growing, countries started signing these double taxation treaties with each other. Basically saying like, look, if you pay taxes in one country, it's unreasonable to have to pay taxes on the same money to another country. So they'd come up with these treaties and be like, yeah, 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 if you do this, you pay the taxes here. If you do this, you pay the taxes there. What this resulted in, though, was companies booking profits in the low-tax territories and posting losses in the high-tax territories. Oh, for sure. Obviously. And then eventually all the profits started to shift offshore. And Mossack Fonseca took advantage of Panama's lax corporate laws and was like, yeah, we'll create all these companies where owners can hide their identities completely, often in complex layered structures described as like a Russian nesting doll effect, like a company and a company and a company and a company. And this is like what we heard them describing in the client emails, right? Like we set up this company and you transfer money to this company and then you buy it through this other company. And this was kind of the system that they were developing to help people avoid paying taxes. And this firm really started to take off. And Fonseca now admits like, yeah, we created a monster back then when we started this. Uh, but meanwhile, as everything was growing into the early 2000s even, uh, he himself started to get active in politics. And this is how we see all these finance dudes, all these rich people, all the politicians, all the business owners, they're all hand in hand. It's all buddy deals. They're all kind of the same entity moving throughout the world. And by the early 2000s, Fonseca himself was a minister counselor to Panama's then president, Ricardo Martinelli. Yeah, it seems like people, I know people want to think, you know, the government is like, you know, what's what protects our freedoms? I'm like, it kind of just seems like a good old boy system. It totally is. I mean, that's what Marx talks about when he talks about the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. When he talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat, the workers will be in charge and we will decide what, what to, is to be done. He's saying that in contrast to what we have now, which is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. He's like, right now, rich people make all the rules and they don't get input or care about what the poor think of it. Yeah, and it's like, it's kind of obvious to everybody it's, but, like, so obvious, though, that people don't even register it as being shocking or horrifying, which it yeah, is. Yeah, and, like, I think that there's just, like, people have, like, just, it's, I think people want either work too much to be able to think about it too much, or yeah. just, like, fuck it, man, I gotta pay my bills, and when I'm not paying my bills, I want to take a nap. Yeah, totally. You know, or they're just, like, weird p people who are, like, I'm gonna be a billionaire. Yeah, today. one day I'm gonna be rich, right. So this company obviously continues to grow, right? One of the founders is literally advising the president. And then it starts participating in these things called wealth symposiums. So one of the firm's partners was this guy named Ramses Owens. And he started participating in one of these wealth symposiums in 2008. And 2008 is important because you know who was elected president in the United States? Uh, Obama. Obama. So Obama sends this like 
panic to a bunch of like conservative rich people. Uh, not that anything actually changed. Like Barack Obama also bombed innocent people in other countries, gave a ton of money to like our military budget and our war machine. You know, he's still, he's a Democrat, right? But Democrats are still capitalists. But still, there was something about him, probably the fact that he was black, you know, where all these conservative rich white people in the United States were like, ah, everything's going to change and my money's in trouble. Yeah. Right? As though the Democrats ever actually put any rich person's money in trouble, okay? Like, they're not. For real. They're not actually changing much. But still, people were panicking. So this Wells Symposium in 2008, Ramsey's Owens was like, okay, you know, we're going to start to market our services to more people. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to say, secure your wealth. We've got this 82-year-old proven, virtually 100% courtroom-proof structure. This is a direct quote. So he knows they're like right in the line here. And he says, this fascinating structure has managed to evade the slickest attorney's tricks and protect the wealth of individuals worldwide for the last eight decades. Whoa. It sounds like an infomercial. It very much is. And they're reaching this new kind of target of person. They're kind of even starting to reach upper middle class Americans who are motivated by fear and racism right because of this obama thing so more and more people are like yeah i've got a little bit of wealth i need to manage it like the rich but it's wild that he's just so egregiously describing here offshore accounting yeah i feel like i mean i feel like it's kind of like uh trump being like like i can get away with anything yeah and well and trump even says like yeah i don't pay taxes because i'm smart and i use every system to not pay taxes and people are like he's so smart he's such a good businessman and nobody's like well, yeah, the only reason it's legal to do that is because the rich are writing the laws. Yeah. It's not like some neutral party was like, here's the laws, play the game fair, kids, and everyone then just competed and did strategy around it. Like, yeah. No, the laws are set up that way because the people writing the laws are the people who benefit from that, so they write laws that benefit that. Yeah. So, okay, you've probably heard of, like, offshore banking, offshore accounting, kind of. Do you, like, really understand how it works or why? Um, no, I don't know what a mutual fund is yet. I mean, I gather that, like, in some countries, they, like, isn't it, like, Switzerland will not give any other country, like, bank information? So, like, if, like, the U.S. is trying to get, like, tax info about a company from Switzerland, they're like, nope. Can't give it to you to pay taxes. There's a lot of places like this. Yeah, the British Virgin Islands are like this. Panama's like this. Yeah. Um, And Jack Blum, who's an attorney who specializes in criminal finance, explains how, like, offshoring works with money in this way. Say the customer's like, hey, I need to hide $50 million. And then they have a firm they hire, someone like Mossack Fonseca, who will say, all right, we can help you with that. So then the firm will create a Panamanian, for example, corporation for you if they're Mossack Fonseca, because that's where they are. They're in Panama. And then we're going to make a trust and then we're going to make a bank account that's owned by that corporation somewhere totally different. And, um, you know, Jack Blum is like, yeah, I you know, did this thing with this one case that really exemplified like how offshoring works when it comes to finances. And he was describing this drug trafficker in the Cayman Islands who had his attorney in Miami refer him to a guy there in the Caymans who would set everything up to make all of his money look legit, right? So the guy in the Caymans makes a corporation for him, and the corporation then opens up a bank account. So then this drug trafficker puts money into that that corporation. The corporation puts the money into the bank account, and a lawyer in the Cayman Islands then controls the account. 
So then let's say that this drug trafficker guy wants some of his money for something and he can't just take it, right? Because it's like dirty money. It's illegal money. So now they need another bank account in the name of another corporation that they're going to transfer that money to. So they make a new corporation that has its own bank account and then they transfer the money from one corporation to another. And the amounts are not going to be identical, right? That would be too obvious. They're just a little different and the transfer goes through. Then the bank account that holds the new money is going to loan that money to not the drug trafficker, but maybe someone close to them. Like in this in instance, it was the drug trafficker's brother who owned a massage parlor in Houston. And they are going to give that money to the brother as a business loan. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what I know about Breaking Bad. You open a car wash. Exactly. Um, I feel like I, if I were laundering money, I would just open a laundromat because it would be funny. That would be funny. Um, and also that Netflix movie is called The Laundromat. That is, like I said, the scripted Meryl Streep acting out of this Panama Papers, Mossack Fonseca thing. Yeah. I mean, I could probably think of a better business to launder money through, but uh, just a laundromat would be funny. I think a parking and garage would be good. Yeah. Ooh. Best businesses we to should launder not money. Say, we should not say. I don't even have enough money to launder. That's I true. Oh, I would do um a video. I would do a pinball game parlor. Oh, that's smart because it's all cash. It's all coins. Yes. Yeah. So you can say it's however you want. Well, when you do this this way, with the money bouncing around, it's untaxable because the guy who ends up with it, the, the brother who owns a massage parlor, it's not earned income. So it's not income, so it doesn't get taxed. It's a loan. You borrowed it. And you don't you don't pay taxes on a loan. Whoa. Right. Because it's not income. You borrowed it, you're gonna have to pay it back. That's not income. Wow. So that is why this stuff kind of works really well. So these documents obviously get released. And everybody kind of knows like how the offshore money moving works, but it's one of those just like open rich guy secrets. Everyone knows this is how it works. It's not technically illegal. But still, the sheer volume of data that gets released in this drop and the names of the people and the little breadcrumbs that you see where you're like, well, this technically actually was illegal, this small part of this. And wait, I think that little bit of that was illegal too. This is just so massive that these journalists like Obermeyer is like, there is a story in here somewhere. This is not just the same rich guy business as usual, rich people carrying on in their rich people ways. There has to be a story in here. So Obermeyer and his colleagues are looking through all the documents showing the offshore accounting and this creative bookkeeping and the like lawmaking and sometimes straight up bribery. And they're like, all right, we have to share this information. Because remember, it's like the biggest dump. It's like 11.5 million documents, right? So they end up sharing all of this data in secrecy with something called the ICIJ. Do you know what this is? You did journalism in college. Uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Oh, okay. Well, this is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And they're a group of reporters whose goal is to defeat this idea of just like one lone wolf investigating everything. They're like, no, no, no. We're all working together. It's collaborative. We are breaking these essential stories, not for glory, not for fame, not for awards, but because these things are important and we need collective investigation across borders to do this right and get the word out. So this organization exists. At the time, they had 60 journalists globally. Now it's more like 280. And Obermeyer takes this to the ICIJ and is like, help. Here's the data. Help. This is massive. So ICIJ gets on this and they're like, all right, we're going to start fact checking and we're going to start analyzing this data. And they end up 
finding out that all of this data involves 214,000 different tax havens across 200 countries and multiple celebrities, yes, and world leaders. Whoa. So they're like, this is so much data. We have to come up with like a data analysis program to make all 11 and a half million of these documents easily searchable and indexable because like how else do you make sense of it? So then we can do that and then we can have journalists able to search all of this data at once and find everything grouped by person or country or entity based on what they want. So they get to work organizing this data, coming up with algorithms, you know, hiring a data analysis to make this info actually usable and accessible. And they made their own like apps where you could chart visually the connections between different people, different entities, different companies, where the money's going. And you could really start to visually follow through these systems they made, these opaque murky connections that were being made to obscure the real owners of these shell corporations, whose assets were really whose, etc. So after ICIJ does this and they're like, okay, now this is fully indexed, we can deal with this. They reach out to a number of journalists around the globe to help sort through this data and make sense of where the stories were in here. So 107 media organizations got involved in 80 different countries. And the idea was like, I don't know who's important in Iceland. I'm not from Iceland. But an Icelandic reporter will be able to be like, whoa, wait, this guy? This guy works at this job for this guy. And he'll be able to find the story in Iceland. So they're like, the more people we have kind of doing the dirty work on their own countries, we'll get more high quality reporting and we'll find the stories in here. So they create this communal database for all the documents, right? Which again, cover the period from 1977 when Mossack Fonseca was founded to December of 2015 by this point. And they include emails, clients' records, information, bank account data, all the stuff. So for a year, in total, 370 journalists across all these organizations accessed and researched the data in secret. Yeah, you'd have to do that shit. Yes, yeah, you can't secret. tell anybody. So they're doing this in secret. And it created the biggest international investigative journalism project, like, ever. Whoa. Yeah. So they had this agreed upon date. They're like, on April 3rd, 2016, we will all come forward with our stories at once. And this will be the first time that we will talk about this leak even existing. And that's what they did. They kept it super secret. And then on April 3rd, 2016, they were like, boom, Panama Papers. All these different media organizations dropped all of this info and all these different stories. And in May, the ICIJ opened public access to all of the Panama Paper documents on its website with a database containing all the info on those 214,000 offshore companies around the globe. Whoa. Yeah, and here in the US, the team that they kind of amassed to help do the American side of things was this uh, kind of media organization called McClatchy in Washington, DC. Hmm. And this was a group of journalists who specialized specifically in this type of like political corruption investigation. And uh, they were able to break the stories in the US from this data early on. So this guy, Kevin Hall from McClatchy, he was like, yeah, look, the thing about the Panama Papers, is this is all the stuff you know rich people are doing, but you can't prove it. But these documents actually proved everything, like really clearly and obviously, which is like gotta be a story in there somewhere because most people just don't see it like that. This is major. And in particular, he's like, the emails between clients and lawyers is really interesting. Uh, they know they're taking bad money. They know they're taking money from criminals sometimes. They know they're taking money from like murderers sometimes. Uh, but they're like, we're gonna take the money in a really clean way that follows the law 
to the letter, even if not to the spirit, right? And it won't be a big deal because nobody's even going to be able to follow the trail if they wanted to. But the data is so extensive that McClatchy is like, the hardest part about this is finding the story in the way that people will actually relate to it. Because like, yeah, everybody knows rich people don't pay their taxes. Yeah, everybody knows that broker people pay more of their taxes appropriately than richer people. But like, is that a story if we all just know it happens and accept it every day as like a common part of capitalism, right? So his main thing is he's like, I have to figure out a route to take to make people actually care about this. And it's really, really shocking because it feels like now on Twitter, you'll see a lot of people be like, remember in 2016 when the Panama Papers dropped and nobody cared about it? And in a lot of other countries, people cared more. But in the United States, you know, it was on the on the news, it was in the media, a few things happened, but it was not the huge make it, break it story that, you know, Kevin Hall and McClatchy was wanting it to be because he was right. It's like, yeah, it's the shit people know rich people are doing. That's the thing. It's like... You know, you, I think you desensitize. You are. It's like you desensitize people to violence. And to me, this is violence. It's financial violence. It's like uh, starving someone, uh, you know, so some rich guy can have a castle. Right. It's like violence. It's like, but people don't think about it because it's not punching someone in the face. Right, but it does. But you're doing the same thing. Like you, You are. You are contributing to a system of growing inequality that leads to, in the United States, according to the Columbia Mailman School of Health, like a million people a year die of inequality and poverty related issues. Yeah. And in the United States alone. And that's like violent people. Okay, you know, shooting someone with a gun, people are like, oh my God, that's so violent. But starving someone to death is also violent. It is also violent. So, but like what Kevin Hall is saying is like, yeah, everyone knows rich people don't pay their taxes and world leaders are corrupt. Everyone knows politicians are corrupt. Everybody knows this. How do we make people care about it? Well, I think that that's where the conservative movement has succeeded because one of the things about the core tenets of the conservative movement is that things cannot be changed, so why try? Like this is the natural, the natural state of things. Like if you think of like the right of kings or whatever. Yes. Like, this is just the way things are. Or, like, you know, that's why I think that, like, people are really trying... Like, if you think about, like, <clears throat> the really, really fundamentalist Christian organizations, they don't care when their leaders cheat on their wives, uh, break the Ten Commandments, because you know what? It's God... Whatever happens, it's God's will. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> in the United States, there was a unique a uniquely difficult time getting people to really care about this information and pay attention to it. Other countries did have more success, though, like I said. Uh, The Guardian, for example, they leaked all, or they they were responsible in, like, doing reporting based on leaked documents. And they said this was the third biggest leak of the 21st century. Not, like, in size, but, like, in order. They're like, the first one was WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Yeah, leaking U.S. military documents from the Iraq War. The second was Edward Snowden leaking info about NSA surveillance. And then there was this, the Panama Papers. And one of the reporters at The Guardian was like, the Panama Papers is essential because it's describing underground rivers of money washing around the globe unbeknownst to most people. And he was totally right. You know, around $3.1 trillion of unaccounted for money globally was found in these documents. Yeah, to me, it's actually, this is a bigger story because it undergirds the system that allowed the Iraq war to happen. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, like, to me, it was a money grab for corporate for the military industrial complex around yeah. Cheney, around Bush, 
you know, regardless of whether Bush is, you know, a little Nepo baby who doesn't know anything, who right. just wants to paint dogs in his bathtub. Yeah, we... That came from a show I watched the other night called Mulligan on... Uh, Netflix. Is it the animated one? Yeah, I just saw like the banner for it, but I haven't watched it. I started that. watching it and I think you might like it. Okay. Because they talk about like, yeah, George, <laughs> but I hate to admit that George Bush does have some good paintings, but he's a war criminal. He's definitely a war criminal. But yes. you know, but you know, to me, it undergirds the system of surveillance. Why do people want the common person to be surveilled so they can keep them under control to make money for the few because if you can control people that's how you control your hoarding of resources right so you know i think people thought that you know obviously iraq was a big thing uh you know the snowden thing was big but you know how i realized that the snowden thing was so important it was john oliver interviewed him and he was like the the question on everyone's mind is does the government have our dick pics? And Snowden laughed. He's like, yeah, the government has your dick pics. Like, he's like, yeah, people who have access to this technology in the government use it to spy on their wives. They use it to, like, wow. look at people having sex and shit. Like. Pretty wild. Yeah. And so, like, people were like, you know, we laugh about the FBI, our own FBI agent. But, like, yeah, the government has all our fucking booty pics yeah i'm sorry like you know but this to me i'm not (laughs) they don't have mine (laughs) they don't have mine no i don't i don't take uh any pictures of my butt i should probably start i really you know i should while it's good it's always gonna be good i mean it's always gonna be if you have a butt it's good it's a good butt that's true um there are no bad butts (laughs) but um pre uh when i decide to get a tattoo on my butt i got that's what i meant when it's pure when it's unblemished by (laughs) an unblemished pure a a virginal butt (laughs) but you know that's what to me this is actually the bigger story because it is the system that allows the dick pics to be hoarded yes it's true. And the other resources that I need more than people's dick pics. Yeah, I don't need those. Sorry. I don't, they can have those. So that's fine. I can't wait. I feel like in the future, people will be unblackmailable. They'll be like, and and so you have my dick pics and... Well, I like that. I like that approach. Like you see people on Twitter. Sometimes someone will try to blackmail. I'm like, I have your nudes. And people are like, I don't give a fuck. Release them. I'll release them right now. Like, release the nudes. Do it. And people are like, oh, shit. I was bluffing. I don't actually have them. Oh, my God. Like, this is intense. Yeah, like, you know, uh, naked people are cool. Yeah, everyone's naked sometimes. Like, consensually naked people are cool. Right, right. Um, I do like the idea of being unblackmailable because you're like, I've done worse to myself. Yeah, I'm like, I am my own worst enemy. Yeah, I have revealed far more about myself on the internet than you could ever reveal about me. Yeah, or you just be like, yo, man, are you okay? Do you have problems? Yeah, well, that's like the time I befriended my hacker. Yeah, it's kind of like... And he was chill, honestly. Yeah, because, you know, but I think that, like uh the like capitalism has created a system where people can separate themselves from the morality of doing bad stuff to other people because they're like money has no feelings you know i i just have to make the most money as possible that's all i'm allowed to do by hook or by crook i sorry i just watched that you know that movie like bell candle whatever it's a i don't know where that it's like a 1950s 
phrase. Oh, no. I think. Where it's like a witchy phrase, I think. But anyway, by whatever means, like, I have to make this money. It's not me doing bad things. I, I'm, you know, it's not me. It's just, you know, our goal in life is to make as much money as right. possible. Or like when people like, it's not personal, it's business. Exactly. That's like the That's exam- exactly yeah. like people, it's abdication of all moral responsibility. And right. to me, like, that's bullshit. Because yeah. like, there are some things in this world that, you know, 99.999% of people will be like, uh, I don't care if you made money, that's fucked up. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely think there's, like, a hierarchy. I think it's, like, go after the the most evil people first. Don't go after, you know, again, like, your friend who maybe, like, barbacked for cash under the table and didn't pay taxes on their fucking 30 grand of income. Oh, like, how they're trying to, like, now issue you 1099s for every Venmo transaction. It's like, bro, that's how people pay rent. Yeah, that's, like, not earned income. That's people yeah, loaning like, each other money or, like, or I bought like French fries. Here's Going money my after friend. everybody's, like, unemployment. So, like, someone who's, like, oh, I technically worked an hour that week. They're, like, give us back $100,000. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, so, whatever. So, we have this all happening. All these media organizations are coming together. A lot of people in the West are, like, how do we make people care about this? People are trying to figure it out. In Panama, the newspaper that broke the stories there was actually called La Prensa, and they were, like, a pretty special newspaper because they have been trying to like bring about freedom of speech because you know Panama had a U.S. backed dictator for a very very oh, long yeah. time. Oh yeah, what was his name? I don't remember his name at the moment. It was big when we were kids. We remember? talked about it in an Operation Condor episode. Yes, and I you know my yeah. memory. Mine is like that too. And unfortunately, the United States has put up so many puppet dictators in so many Latin American countries that it's sometimes hard to keep track of them all and over yeah. a lot of time. But La Prensa was a really cool newspaper there that was always kind of doing journalistic activism. Uh, so they were the ones responsible for breaking the stories about Panama specifically. And in total, by spring of 2015, there were, yeah, uh, already hundreds of journalists around the globe working with this data and doing it in secrecy because they were afraid. And they had this rule and they all said, you know, don't tell anybody what you're doing and encrypt everything. So they started focusing on public figures. That was something easy for people to start to look at. Because, again, remember, they're trying to be like, how do we make people care about this? And they're like, well, celebrities. People care about celebrities. We'll focus on that. People care about really high up politicians, world leaders. We'll focus on that. And then, yeah, they divided the documents by region so that journalists from one region were focusing on the data from their own area because they knew who was important and relevant. And the result was interesting, right? Because we saw these kind of smaller and more localized stories break out, but in lots of different places. So that's why now when you look at the Panama Papers, you don't see one story. You see thousands of stories because this public database, any journalist could go in and find the information they thought was relevant, that they thought was the most pressing story. And because there was 11 and a half million documents, there were thousands of stories to be told in these. So there's no possible way we could talk about everything the Panama Papers revealed. But just to show like how widespread it was, I found a few examples that were the most considered the most sensational in 2016. Uh, one of the most sensational ones was about the Iceland prime minister at the time. Did mm. you hear anything about this guy? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. So he, his name was Sigmundur David Gunlaugson. And it was revealed in the Panama Papers that he had an offshore company, like a shell corporation, called Wintrust. And documents show that he and his wife, through Wintrust, had a stake in a company that was seeking millions of dollars from failed Icelandic banks. Whoa. And that ended up violating parliamentary ethics rules in Iceland. 
And Gumlexton was kind of famous for this because he talked about it a lot. He was really like, yeah, 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 we're fine. Like, no, no, no. Like, I'm an open book, guys, not me. <laughs> um, but he ended up, like, before all this was revealed, selling half of Winterest to his wife. And then there was this uh, heiress named Palso Dottir, who was this wealthy heiress, right? And then she was the wife and she was like, no, this company was mine all along, actually. My husband didn't even sell it to me. It was just a bank error that his name ended up being listed as co-owner. So this is how, how before he was like maybe elected, he was trying to be like, no, no, I don't owe that, own that. So nothing was like violating ethics rules, but it wasn't really opaque and it wasn't elegantly done. And he ended up, despite doing a lot of media and being like, this is just a misunderstanding, guys. Like, everything's fine. He still ended up having to resign because documents revealed that he was using this offshore company to shelter money. And he did not disclose it. Wow. Yeah, so after two days of dealing with public backlash, he stepped down and he was replaced by somebody new. Uh, he did actually, though, end up mounting a political comeback. A year later, 2017, he established the Conservative Center Party, and he continues to serve in Iceland's parliament as a party leader there. Wow. Yeah, he's still involved in politics. Another one that was pretty famous was Malta. Mm. And as you know, I went to Malta last year. <laughs> it's a very beautiful place. But it's interesting, when you talk to people in Malta, they're always like, well, there's a lot of corruption here. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm from the United States. There's a lot of corruption in the United States, too. We just call it lobbying, right? And they're like, no, you know, there's like, we got a world-famous type of corruption here. They've got a lot of problems with the mafia and with uh, gambling corruption is mm. what the people, the Maltese people I was talking to were saying. But I didn't fully understand it, right, because I'm not Maltese. But uh, basically the prime minister at the time was Conrad Mitzi. And local investigative journalists in Malta found that this small group of influential politicians and businessmen, including Conrad Mitzi, were operating kind of as a gang that had captured Malta based on their wording. They were like, yeah, all these people are laundering money and campaign financing in illegal ways to ensure that they stay in power and they stay wealthy. Mm -hmm. So this was a major thing that broke in Malta as a result of this. Also, Russia, here's the Putin stuff. Okay, it's worth noting that Putin's name actually does not occur anywhere in the Panama Papers. No documents. However, we do know there were some things that were, like, related to him. So, like, there was an offshore entity, for example, that was given $1 billion by a Russian bank. And then that entity later loaned the owners of the ski resort where Putin's daughter was married $11 million. So, like, some stuff happening. Um, but the main thing that happened in Russia wasn't Putin, but it was Putin's best friend, a cellist named Sergei Roldgen, who was also godfather to Putin's oldest daughter. So because Sergei Roldgen was showing up a lot in these documents, everyone's like, this gotta be a Putin thing. Yeah, because he's probably like, yo, buddy, I can't put my name on this. Like, can you do me a solid? Yeah, so Roldgen is like, I'm not a businessman, I'm a cellist, ah. But he ended up having, it was revealed in these documents, a 12.5% stake in Russia's biggest TV advertising agency, Video International, which has annual revenues of more than 800 million uh, pounds. Pounds is how this information was released for some reason. Uh, also, prior to this, the ownership was always considered a closely guarded secret. Nobody would say who owned it. So for him to own 12.5% was considered a major. Um, he was also given an option to buy a minority stake in a Russian truck manufacturer called Kamaz, which makes army vehicles. And it was revealed that he has 15% ownership of a Cyprus-registered company called Raytar. 
I mean, he is a rich guy. He's a pretty famous musician. His net worth was like $100 million. And a lot of people in the United States were like, how is a cellist's net worth $100 million? But I'm like, I don't fucking know, man. Rich people exist everywhere, all sorts of ways. Like, I, you know, the guy owning stock, because really that's what shares of ownership are, doesn't seem super interesting to me. We know these are real companies. They're not like shell companies, right? And also, I'm not a Russia fanboy, but I also do think that the West obviously really sensationalizes a lot of things. Like anything that happens is Russia is like a holdover from the Cold War. And I'm also like, oh, a lot of these critiques are pretty hypocritical coming from the United States of all places. I like to keep my critiques at home when I can, you know. The Russia thing's just interesting. I just know our country and the West in general has an agenda with Russia. I'm not super into Russia. I know a lot of leftists for some reason are super into Russia, but I'm not super... I no strong feelings about Russia, you know, but still, this is kind of the stories that everyone was breaking was all about Putin's best friends. And I'm like, there's something here. The thing I think is the most interesting, though, isn't the best friend cellist, because I'm like, I don't know, he's a rich guy, rich guys are rich guys. There's something about Bank Russia, which is like the Russian bank. That's like, Russia is like how you say Russia in in Russia. So this bank is headed by this guy, Yuri Kolvachuk, and he and the bank transferred over a billion dollars to an offshore entity called Sandalwood Continental. The funds for which came from a series of enormous unsecured loans from the state-controlled Russian commercial bank located in Cyprus and other state banks. Meanwhile, a $6 million yacht was purchased by Sandalwood Continental and shipped to a port near St. Petersburg. And some loans with really low interest rates, like 1%, were made to other politicians and people in government. So in 2010 and 2011, then Sandalwood was the one that made three loans worth $11.3 million to an offshore company called Ozon, who owns that upmarket Yagara Ski Resort that we talked about earlier. Mm. So Ozon belongs to Kovalchuk, right, who's the, the head of the Bankroisia, and this other company. So that stuff to me is more interesting than the rich Russian cellist. Because it's like, well, this is like, you see the thing that we talked about earlier where like the bank does the thing. Like remember the drug trafficking story where the guy's like, yeah, you do this and you do the loan and then it's not income. Mm -hmm. And we kind of see that happening like this. So I'm like, okay, that is the more pressing example, I think, of what was going on in Russia in the Panama Papers. Um, okay, so the next one is Pakistan. The prime minister at the time, Nawaz Sharif, ended up being disqualified from prime minister, uh, ministership and sentenced to 10 years in prison, as well as being fined $10.6 million. And he was banned from holding public office for life after an official probe into his finances following the Panama Papers revealed that his children were linked to offshore companies that owned four apartments in a luxury apartment block in London hmm. that wasn't disclosed or dealt with properly. Also in Great Britain, the prime minister, David Cameron at the time, uh, as well as like in total, six members of the House of Lords, three former conservative MPs, dozens of donors to British political parties. All of them have these offshore assets. So this was major in the UK. And Prime Minister David Cameron, his mother transferred two separate payments of £100,000 to his accounts in 2011 in a way that allowed the family estate to avoid paying £80,000 worth of inheritance tax when his dad died. Oh, my God. So it was two offshore accounts that he owned, like, shell companies, owned the accounts, and then, yeah, the money was transferred in a way where he avoided paying that inheritance tax. Here in the United States, Donald, Trump, Donald Trump's name appeared a lot in these documents. If you had to <laughs> guess, how many times do you think Donald Trump's name appeared? Like 200. It was 3,000. 
1,450 times. Oh my God, I was too low. (laughs) But, you know, we're leftist non-Democrats here, so we got to note, Barack Obama's U.S. Commerce Secretary, Penny Pritzker, the billionaire heir to the Hyatt Hotel fortune, uh, also appeared in the Panama Papers with a lot of offshore accounts, a lot of mystery money moving around, and... Pritzker was not only, you know, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, but also a long-term friend and associate and donor of Barack Obama. Mm. So the Democrats and the Republicans are all up to the same stuff. In Peru, presidential candidate Rafael Lopez Aliga, or Aliaga lost the presidential campaign due to his push to get the courts to stop an investigation into his involvement with a money laundering case related to the Panama Papers. Oh, my God. Everyone was like, sketchy. In Argentina, President uh, Mauricio Macri at the time was named in the Panama Papers for being the director of a Bahamas-based company called Fleg Trading, which really awkward name. F-L-E-G? Fleg? Fleg? I feel like they're just like rolling dice with letters to come up with names for these corporations, you know? Actually, that would be kind of a fun job. Like, you're like, I just work here. My job is to name the Shell Corporation. Oh, I this thing that you see on Instagram, like, what is your goth name? Oh, yeah, like the name generators, like, like make them all cyberpunk. Mine is uh, Hellraiser Kitty. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, I'm not saying this is a moral job you could have. I'm just saying if you were this type of criminal, the most fun job would be the naming of the Shell Corporations. If I, I had to work for the mafia, I'd be like, just give me the naming job. Yeah. Just give me, in any company, just give me the naming job. Hello, this is um, Hugh Jackman (laughs) (laughs) for Hellraiser Kitty Enterprises. (laughs) Well, President Mauricio Macri, right, director of the Bahamas-based company Fleg Trading, Shell Corporation, from 1998 to 2009, he didn't disclose it. The company was not declared in his 2007 financial records. Um... And instead, you know, he declared international assets that year that did include $2.9 million in an account in the United States, but not this other one in the Bahamas. The Panama Papers also showed that uh, Mosek Fonseca set up 123 offshore companies in Las Vegas, which were used to steal millions of dollars from government contracts under a different Argentinian president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, which was major because she was supposed to be the leftist. She was supposed to be the super moral one, uh, but her friend, Lazara Baez, was found to be in control of those assets from those 123 offshore companies in Las Vegas uh, up to $50 million. Whoa. Yeah, because Nevada passed a bunch of laws making that, like, kind of tax haveny as a state. Interesting. Yeah, the Panama Papers also named former Kirchner aide Daniel Munoz, connecting him with an offshore company in the British Virgin Islands, and also showed that he used that account to transfer large sums of money for the Kirchners. Wow. Yes. And in Ukraine, the president then, Petro Poroshenko, a document suggested that he set up an offshore company as a tax haven using Mossack Fonseca. The company uh, was in the British Virgin Islands that they set up called Prime Assets Partners. And it actually described itself as a holding company of the Roshan Confectionery Group. And this is relevant because before becoming president, he had been known as the Chocolate King. 
<laughs> yes. So during his presidential campaign in 2014, uh, Poroshenko vowed to sell most of his business assets. He won the election. He was sworn in June 2014, but the assets were just transferred instead to that newly created holding company. Yeah. Do you think, Don- I bet you Donald Trump did that. Probably. Like, you know, like, cause he was like, oh, I'm going to put the business in charge with my kid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, you know, that. I mean, if he was mentioned already, he probably has, he probably was making money the whole fucking time. Oh yeah. Uh, in October 2014, a Ukrainian bank that Poroshenko was a controlling owner in sent a letter of recommendation to Mossack Fonseca saying that his accounts had been conducted properly up to our satisfaction. Uh, then in Brazil, so in Brazil we have President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva and some other people involved. So in 2014, Brazil started to have this like huge bribery scheme break out. Um, it's a massive. It was a huge corruption scandal and it was called Operation Car Wash. And it involved Brazil's largest company, which was a state-run energy firm called Petrobras. And they laundered upwards of $5.3 billion. Whoa. Yeah, and the Panama Papers revealed that at least 57 people already linked to Operation Car Wash, also had opened uh, more than 107-ish offshore companies through Mossack Fonseca as well. And Brazilian prosecutors brought charges against the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca, the lawyers there for both money laundering and hiding documents related to the Brazilian Petrobras scandal, including the ones that implicated the president at the time. Now we're going to get into celebrities. Cool. I Um, hope Hugh Jackman is involved. (laughs) No, no. There are two celebrities I included who I thought were interesting. The first one's a little sad. You ready to get your heart broken? Robert Pattinson? No, Jackie Chan. Aww. Yeah. I love Jackie Chan movies. Jackie Chan, uh, (laughs) hiding money. Uh, and at least six companies managed through Mossack Fonseca. Wow. Um, I loved mm-hmm. Police Story. Uh, and Rush the drunken, Hour. And the drunken ma- yeah, and the Drunken Master. Yeah. Uh, the Also, the next one, remember how I said we weren't done talking about Harry Potter? Daniel Radcliffe? Emma Watson. <gasps> I no, know. She was Hermione, Emma. right? I remembered right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. thought it was going to be J.K. Rowling. <laughs> She probably does too. I'm just going to say it. We're just going to say she did. We're going to spread a little. If it's uh, misinfo, she hasn't coming. I, for legal reasons, that is a joke. For legal reasons, that is a joke. Uh, for not legal reasons, she is an asswipe. <laughs> Fuck her. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so Emma Watson did have offshore accounts through Mossack Fonseca, used as tax havens. Emma. Also, this was just, like, interesting. While Beyonce and Jay-Z weren't named, they did spend almost a million dollars renting a yacht to sail the Mediterranean Sea. They rented it from someone named Kolawole Aluko, who was then accused of defrauding the Nigerian government, including allegations that that same yacht was bought with profits from crude oil sales that were illegally diverted and held through a shell company created by Mossack Fonseca. Uh. Well, to be fair, I feel like if you're that rich, you're just like, assistant, book this million dollar yacht. Yes. So Beyonce and Jay-Z sailed on the blood money oil sale fraud yacht. Oh, well. They didn't know. They they didn't didn't know. know. They didn't know. Um, Not that I'm defending them. They're billionaires and I really, I don't care. It's hard. The only like, I feel like it's funny because everyone's like, fuck the billionaires. And they're like, even though I don't want to say Rihanna because we all love Rihanna. Right. I mean, some of your favorite celebrities are billionaires and they probably don't need to be. You know, but I don't want to upset the, the Bayhive seems like someone you don't want to contend no, with. No, 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 no. I don't know much about pop culture, but I, I just thought that was an interesting one. But the, the guy that they rented the yacht from, Aluko, 
he's kind of a fun character in the world of like <laughs> shady, rich, politician-y people. He's often described as Nigeria's playboy. He owns an $8.6 million apartment in Manhattan, and he owns $70 million worth of homes in Santa Barbara and Beverly Hills. Whoa. That are just four homes. They're just four homes worth $70 million combined. How many rooms? I don't know. Just like hella. Like, I don't even think they count them. You know, you know how you're in a rich person's house, actually? They have more bathrooms than bedrooms. You're right. Yes. Anytime you look at, like, ridiculous houses for sale, they have more bathrooms than bedrooms. I think that is, like, a rich person thing. And the bathrooms are in a separate room than the shower. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, um always think about that like when I go to houses that have like the water closet in the bathroom I'm like this is fancy Fancy. but I think in other countries it's more um common yeah maybe yeah um and also in like really small apartments like in Brooklyn or like densely populated cities sometimes the the bath and the the shower will be in the kitchen and the toilet's in its own room yeah. 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 It's like, it's, sometimes it's called a bitchin'. It's a bathroom kitchen. A bitchin'. <laughs> That's like, yeah. I would love to take, as long as the bath is deep, I will bathe anywhere. I, that is one thing that I know, like one day, all I aspire to in this world is to have one of those like deep Japanese style soaking tubs and um, a patio. I think we can make both these And a hypoallergenic dog. I think all three of these things can happen for you. Because um, I, uh, I'm allergic to dogs now. I know. It's very sad. Um, also, this next one, I don't know who this is because I don't know anything about sport ball, but I'm assured he is like the most famous sport baller in the world. His name is uh, Lionel Messi. Have you heard of him? I feel like I've heard my boyfriend talk about him. He's oh, a soccer player. Oh, the soccer player. player. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a soccer player. He and his father both were found to own Panamanian shell companies for tax purposes. And he was also unrelated to the Panama Papers already involved in a tax fraud case in Spain. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, yo, if you're that rich, like... Just pay the taxes. Yeah, you know? Um, Speaking of soccer, there's also just like... FIFA in general. Oh, yeah. They're so corrupt. Yeah, like the soccer people. fucked. (laughs) So a key member of their ethics committee, which is supposed to be spearheading reform at, like, the world football level, because they have this, like, scandal upon scandal upon scandal period. So they're supposed to have this, like, ethics committee that's going to fix everything. Well, one of the key members of that ethics committee acted as a lawyer for individuals and companies who were charged with bribery and corruption. It was revealed in the Panama course, Papers documents. Of course. Uh, Juan Pedro Damiani was a member who also sat on FIFA's ethics committee, and he was an influential attorney from Uruguay and one of the country's wealthiest men. And he is also president of Peñarol Montevideo, the country's most popular football team. So his law firm, J.P. Damiani, is among the bigger clients of Mossack Fonseca. Damiani's firm managed more than 400 companies like this, uh, most of which have been involved in scandals. And the leaked documents reveal that Damiani, the FIFA ethics expert, also managed companies through which FIFA members may have received some bribes. <laughs> the Panama Papers show that his law firm's offshore clients include three of the defendants in the FIFA scandal. Damiano's fellow countryman and former FIFA vice president, Eugenio Figueredo, as well as Hugo Jinkis and his son, Mariano Jinkis, two Argentinian businessmen who own and operate a football broadcasting rights company. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so what is the significance of all of this? Like I said, I feel like when all this broke, everybody in the United States was like, yeah, rich people are doing rich people shit. Not shocking. But 
But the thing that the whistleblower said about income inequality, even though they clearly lived in this kind of delusional state where they're like, capitalism isn't supposed to be like this, where you're like, this is literally how capitalism was set up to be, but okay. They had a point when they were talking about income inequality and just how much shit like this actually matters in the context in the lens of, of poverty, right? Between 1988 and 2011, income for the world's poorest 10% rose by less than $3 per year. And we know that the rich are just getting astronomically richer like by the minute, basically. And advocates have been saying, look, this global poverty, it exists specifically because of the type of corruption we see in the Panama Papers. The wealthy should at least be paying their fair share of taxes to help pay for things like schools and roads if the rest of us are. And obviously, in my humble opinion, that's just a band-aid on the overwhelming obvious issue here, which is that like capitalism is the system that allows income inequality and wealth inequality to flourish in the first place, and you need to defeat capitalism. Um, you know, but even Marx did say, in a system of socialism, that transition away from capitalism would be marked with heavy equalizing taxes. So regardless of where you stand, taxing rich people more is a good idea, whether you want capitalism or socialism. Yeah, and it's just like, in all fairness, like if you, I think I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say, most people believe in fairness and most people get ticked off when things are not fair. Yes. Like some things in life intrinsically not fair. Like I don't think it's fair that, uh, you know, time goes forward and we age and we die and we don't get to be vampires. That is unfair, in my opinion. I want to be a vampire. Yes. That is unfair. Yes. I think also unfair is things uh, like healthcare. Like, I don't think it's fair that we don't get to decide where our tax dollars go. They should yeah. go more to healthcare than to the military. We and, need free healthcare in the US. And it's funny, I was talking to someone and they were like, well, I don't think it's fair. I work really hard. My whole family works really hard to pay for someone who is lazy. And I think they were thinking about poor people. But I'm like, but what about people who just inherited their wealth and don't work? Like, They're are you ma- so lazy, yeah. Are you mad at them, too? And they were very confused. Like, they they had to think about it for a second. Right. And also, I think this whole idea that, like, poor people don't work is so outdated. Like, It's not true. 40% of unhoused People have a full-time worker in their household and they're still unhoused. Um, you know, which like I don't I think even people who don't work should get food and shelter and yeah, health care. I but, think that it's okay. Like I But I think most people do not mind working as long as it's in a fair environment. I think that people don't mind doing shit as long as it's fair. I mean, there's always some people who are like there's always the one percent and people okay. I will say this a million times. Being annoying is not a crime. Yeah. People will be like, this one annoying person doesn't work the way that I want them to work. Therefore, we can never give anybody money because one really mean, annoying person is going to get money. Right. Like, you know, or like, I think that people want to basically blow up the system because they're mad at one really annoying person. And my hot take is, yeah, one annoying person gets like you know, shit that we don't want them to have, but also who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? Annoying people get shit I don't want them to have all day, every day in our current system. Like fucking uh, Elon Musk. Yes, exactly. That dude is so fucking annoying. There's never been a more annoying person. Like, I would dare say he is the most fucking annoying person on the planet. He might be, honestly. Uh, And you know what? I'm not going to blow up my whole life because he exists. Right, but it's like in our current system, he's getting rewarded a fuck ton, so you don't want 
poor people to have basic human rights, but you want that guy to have be hoarding more wealth than he could ever possibly. Yeah, or use. I think a lot of people use it like to like especially in Los Angeles about like homelessness and being like, well, this one guy who like lives outside is really like annoying and like mean to me, and they don't like they're messy and they and I'm just like. So because of one guy who you interacted with, you don't want to give anybody housing? Yeah, I mean, also that ties into that Jordan Neely thing. What's that? Did you see this? Oh, um, footage came out recently on a New York subway of an unhoused man in, like, a mental health crisis. And he's just like, yeah, like, I'm tired of being broke all the time. I can't afford food. I can't afford to drink anything. Like, I'm so fucking tired of being broke. And this guy, who was later revealed was a former Marine put the man in a headlock and choked him for 15 minutes until he <gasps> defecated on himself and died. <sighs> and everybody on the subway watched. One guy told the dude, like, hey, my wife's former Marines. You know this man just defecated on himself. That means he's dying, right? Like, you're aware of this? And, like, so it was this huge thing. And then it later came out, like, that the guy who did it, who who's on this video choking this man, his dad I believe had been former NYPD and for a long time they didn't release his name and the internet like did all this deep dive research to try to figure out why he who he was and why his name wasn't released when they had very clear video video footage of him doing this it was this whole thing and then a lot of people started to come out to just kind of talk about like on the internet how annoying unhoused people were and like how that man shouldn't have been yelling people are not perfect and if people have to be perfect to get services then you're then nobody's getting services and everyone deserves to die something is like happening in our culture now where there's this this broad swath of like if you're imperfect and annoying like fuck you well and that's what happened on the train it's like you think that if a man annoys you in a public space and he is unhoused someone has the right to kill him yeah and that's like kind of the thing like when people are like oh well we need to I was talking a little bit more existentially, not like specifically, but like, you know, when people are like, well, we just need to clear the streets. I don't care where they go. Like, they just need to figure it out. You're, you're giving some people a death sentence. Yeah, 100%. And to me, it's like, there are certain, like, most countries do not have the death penalty, just to put that in perspective. So you're sentencing someone to death for... Uh, doing something annoying on the street. Also, if I, like, I I have been unhoused in not the most visible sense. There's, like, different types of being unhoused. It's, like, uh, hidden homelessness is the type of homeless I was. Um, And that, honestly, I'm not special for being. I feel like once you start talking to people about hidden homelessness, you'll be very surprised to learn most people have experienced hidden homelessness at some point Or just be like, oh, well, I was just couch surfing. Yes, we call it these innocuous names. That's homelessness. Um, Or I was just just staying with a friend for a while while I was in between places and jobs and didn't have any money. Right, or like I was sleeping in my car. You know, it's like these are all forms of hidden homelessness, you know, whatever. Um, But yeah, I think that like, if you, if, if I was in that position where I was visibly unhoused on the street multiple nights in a row, like unsheltered, unhoused on the street, I would be as annoying as fuck. I would be so fucking pissed all the time. And I think that is good. I think people should be angry that our society has put them in that position. They have the right to be angry and annoying and take up space and be like, this situation is not fucking okay. Like somebody needs to pay attention to what's happening to me because this should not be allowed to exist. Like I would be like that. I think people should be calling attention to that. And to bring it back to the Panama Papers, I think the reason why people are not as pissed off about this as say like um, unhoused people or, you know, they're like more, 
because like I saw I saw something maybe it was on TikTok or something where this person who studies like power dynamics was like people rarely punch up for example yeah. like in bullying if someone's being like bullied by like a teacher they usually don't take it out on the teacher they'll take it out laterally or downwards right. so they will take it out on their classmates or their younger sibling they won't take it out on the teacher right you know or like you have a boss and the boss is a real dick you take it out on your co-workers your spouse somebody driving like road rage incident when you're on the street you don't take it out on your boss because if you punch your boss you're gonna get fired right so you know <clears throat> in this situation also it's very um it feels i don't know if existential is the word but it feels like how do i like how do i punch elon musk how do i punch fucking i mean i'm not gonna you know like I'm not going to punch Emma Watson. No, but like... I you, might punch Emma Watson. No, but like, <laughs> you know, like, people can't... So people are, like, it's too abstract. It's too weird to get yeah. mad at a billionaire. Because we actually, like, as much as people think that people know how billionaires exist, like... We kind of don't. It is kind of a foreign concept to us. Like we I, think that we do from TV shows and shit, but we actually fucking don't. Like we don't. People write articles about it, and they're like, "You don't realize it until you're in the world, just ha- that world." Like people talk about becoming wealth managers from being poor. Like yeah, just how fucking different it is. Yeah. So it's too abstract to get mad at really rich people, and it's also too abstract because we think that we want all those material goods, but what we don't realize is we okay so me i want a patio a dog and a soaking tub right and you know in my mind i'm like when i'm rich but if you're a billionaire you have a hundred patios a hundred soaking like you i don't need all that shit like it's it's stuff that's like beyond what you can even comprehend like i think most people just want their needs met and you think that it's like Oh, well, like, I want to become rich. I want to become a billionaire. But you think, like, I th- I literally think that most people now our age, like, aspire to pets. Yeah. Or, like, being, like, I know people now who are, like, I wish that, like, one day I want to be able to afford to have a kid. Yeah. One day I want to be able to afford. To, to buy an apartment. I want to be able to have, like, a two-bedroom apartment. I want right. to be able to have two bathrooms. So, like, my boyfriend doesn't, like, w- wake me up every, you know, like, yeah. have to run into the bathroom every time I'm taking a shower. Right. You know, it's just one of... Like, we think of all these things as being luxuries when they're really not. No, they're not luxuries Like, a luxury is fucking <clears throat> taking your private jet from Calabasas to fucking Santa Barbara. Right. I think something also that's interesting that ties in with this, like, media-related, before we get back to the Panama Papers. Yeah, sorry, I went no, off no, on no. a tangent. <laughs> There's, um, like, a TikTok where a screenshot's going viral where a girl is, like, uh, maybe not a girl, a feminine person in the video is, like, <clears throat> um when something about like when you're like excited for the socialist revolution but it turns out you have to work in the coal mines because they don't need another freelance resin artist or something (laughs) and it's going viral but I was like oh this is actually funny because it just kind of shows how disconnected we are from like the idea of labor and who works for what and who works for money because like first of all coal mines wouldn't exist in socialism the fact that coal mining exists is because of bribery lobbying and like all these backhanded government deals in capitalism because 
a few people make a lot of money off coal mining, so we have to act like coal mining is still important, which Statistic Kenna loves to say. There are more professional YouTubers than coal miners. Right. Coal mining only exists. It is not a good form of energy for us. It is not an efficient form of energy. No. And it only exists because of capitalism. So right there, you're like, coal mining wouldn't even exist but also, in a system that wasn't motivated coal by capitalism. Coal mining wouldn't exist because <clears throat> if you didn't have the capitalism making just so much bullshit yeah you wouldn't need to expend all the energy because you're not creating excess product and people i think that people think that if you live in socialism you're like really bummed out because you have to like wait in bread lines and stuff i'm like no what people don't realize is just there's so so much excess shit yeah and it's mainly going to these rich people like what to or me, getting intentionally destroyed because of the free market hell gods. Yeah, like remember during COVID when like all the potatoes were being destroyed. Yeah, you know, like at, or like you know when we talk about agriculture, like because of the way that government subsidizes agriculture, sometimes agri- like you, you just have to destroy crops. So like, or you make the cheese caves underground with all the cheese that was made from the milk that was government subsidized, people, but nobody actually needs the cheese. So it's just wasted, even though people are hungry and starving. What people don't realize is that capitalism is super, super inefficient. So inefficient. So if you got rid of all the inefficiencies and all the bullshit jobs, like there's actually like, think about how many jobs exist just as middlemen. Yeah. So you cut all that shit out. Really, there's probably only a couple real bummer jobs. Also, though, when I saw this, I was like, okay, well, that's the first fallacy, right? The coal mining thing. But second, I'm like, I think that there's this idea that people don't want to do, like, difficult or dirty work. No, remember, dirty jobs! People do want to do this. They just don't want to be taken advantage of and exploited in the process. Like, if you told me, like, hey, Madeline, do you want to work, like, 28 hours a week? Like, literally shoveling shit in a giant sewage tank but it will be for the good of your community and you'll make a good wage and you'll have a good life and you only have to work 28 hours a week doing it i'd be like yeah shovel and you some get shit and you get three months of vacation yeah. and like, like every- you you get paid time off you can have a kid if you want you can you live in a house you're not afraid but you're also, gonna lose you're not in debt but also like in that dirty jobs there are people who just like i actually love shoveling shit and I, I loved, like, I mean, I, but, like, people like having jobs also that are useful for their community. People you, like to work as long as they know is, it's not just going to make some rich asshole even richer, like Panama Paper style. Yeah, that's, this is why you should read that book, The Dispossessed, because yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin specifically goes into this, where it's just, like, if you have shitty jobs, people kind of rotate them out. Like, I feel like that happens, like, um... At certain workplaces, too, like, okay. We've done that at our jobs before. Sometimes people have a mental breakdown from doing customer service and they need to be rotated. They tap out to a different job for a while and someone else would take over customer service. Yeah, it's just, like, I think that, like, people think that it's way more complicated than it is. Like, I honestly, that show Mulligan, even though, like, I haven't watched it all yet. I've watched the first two couple episodes and it's, like, what would happen if, like, the apocalypse ended and only 1100 people survived and they're like no more capitalism oh that's funny we should watch it um i I started watching it was really funny that was like and and like it's honestly like we should do a bonus episode about it but i haven't finished it yet so i i haven't discovered it because tina fey's in it and i'm like i wonder if this is gonna be problematic yeah tina fey loves to be problematic she keeps like doubling down on it Um, um but like there the premise of the show is i think just even though it's like a really stupid show, it's like kind of smart because people are like, well, if you have all these things, what are the logistics? I'm like, I don't know. Have you ever been to fucking summer camp and had to figure out a group project? 
Yeah, you figure there's it out. There's some Okay, there's always a couple people who are really good at it and a couple people are mid. Yeah. And there's maybe one person who slacks off, but you know what? They're probably funny. Yeah, that's true. They keep the morale up as long as you're not <laughs> mad. So I'm like it, honestly, like I strive for a world where there's only two jobs. Freelance journalist and shit shoveler. Yeah, that's fine. I'll do either. I don't <laughs> care. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if you're talking about all of this happening, the Panama paper shit within the system of capitalism, and you're looking at the income inequality, I think it still is relevant that even if you were still operating in a system of capitalism, yeah, you'd want these rich people paying their fair share, right? Because most of us are paying our fair share within the system, as we're told, right? Like, when you he see people talk about this, they're like, Look, average people, like, the the taxes come out of their paycheck, they get sent to the government, they do their taxes, and if they do anything that seems slightly fraudulent, they get audited. Yeah. Like, we don't have access to the Mossack, you know, Fonseca or whatever, doing all these things, creating these offshore accounts, doing these complex webs of things, and then if you do get in trouble, you have these lawyers representing you and you know everything's by the book, even though it doesn't follow the spirit of the law, it follows the letter of the law, so you can't get in trouble. Average people don't have that. Rich people have that. It's not fair. That's very baseline. And I think that is something that people understand. And as reporters were going through these documents and seeing all these offshore tax havens, they, even reporters who hadn't been that mad at capitalism before, started to realize that this was not a small bug of capitalism. This was a key feature of how our global capitalist economy works. So according to Transparency International UK, the leaks demonstrated that, quote, this is not a fundamentally benign system that has been eroded at the edges by a few criminals. It is a system with deeply ingrained criminality that is now operated in the interests of the world's corrupt elite. Yeah. So in the U.S., you know, it's anticipated that the global cost of tax avoidance from the uber wealthy alone is thought to be around $200 billion. Whoa. Just from the uber wealthy. In Japan, it's a little under $50 billion. In France, it's $30 billion. In Germany, it's $15 billion. And this is really significant when you think about what we could do in the U.S. with $200 billion from these super rich people. That lost tax money alone, it could pay for nearly 10 years of free college. Whoa. Or it could pay for over five years of ending hunger in the U.S., or it could pay for, this one's wild, a $333,000 house for every single unhoused person in the USA. Not unhoused families, every single unhoused person. Whoa. Yeah. And then a 2013 UN report found that the total tax evasion uh, cost in the United States, not just from like the uber wealthy or whatever, could be more like $277 billion per year. And that would be enough to provide free health care uh, to 28 million Americans, which is significant because 40 million Americans live in poverty, so that's most people living in poverty would have health care if that money were distributed and collected. Uh, it also could provide the entire funding of the Department of Education for four years. Whoa. And it could provide 60% of the entire country's infrastructure budget for the year. Whoa. And it's funny because, like, with all, you know, like, the budget crisis looming, it's like, these aren't raising tax. These are taxes that are just supposed to be collected. You're it's not even charging it. extra taxes. And I'm like, why are you so against collecting them? And you're like, oh, because they're, they're all lobbying you. It's you and your friends. Yeah. yeah. So Rana Furahur, who uh, writes about the economy for Time magazine, says all of the revelations in the Panama Papers could very well, if people take them seriously, 
be indicating a great crisis for capitalism in general. So she said, to me, this is one of the key issues at work in the U.S. presidential elections. Voters know at a gut level that our system of global capitalism is working mainly for the 1%, not the 99%. The Panama Papers illuminate a key aspect of why the system isn't working. Because globalization has allowed the capital and assets of the 1%, be they individuals or corporations, to travel freely, while those of the 99% cannot. Globalization is supposed to be about the free movement of people, goods, and capital. But in fact, the system is set up to enable that mobility mainly for the rich or for large, large corporations. The result is global tax evasion, the offshoring of labor, and an elite that flies 35,000 feet over the problems of nation states and the taxpayers within them. And I thought this was interesting. You know, I really don't like, like, offshoring language. I think that that's, like, really weird and usually is used in, like, xenophobic, anti-China kind of slandering things. Um... You know, but it is true that American corporations do go into places like Bangladesh, for example, and exploit systems and take advantage of workers there. And that is super important and interesting to note. I think China is a different thing than, you know, what we think of because it's highly skilled labor and it's not a place to go for cheap labor, especially not anymore. But, you know, so the offshoring of labor thing, that I think is complicated and that involves some nuance to parse. But the thing I like about this is she's basically like, look, we've created an elite that flies literally in private jets over the nations can be in any nation they want whenever it's convenient for whatever purposes and that I think is something that's interesting to consider because I'm not a person who's like opposed to globalization in any capacity I think that you know especially if you're thinking about it from like a socialism perspective like the forever revolution is a thing Trotsky talked about a lot you know where it's like well yeah the liberation of all people globally is important Mm -hmm. and that means working together globally so I think that that also has a lot of complicated things that need to be parsed with nuance as well. But just that idea that there are people who are so rich they can literally choose to exist in whatever country is most convenient for them legally at any time. They're like not actually residents of the same planet we are. They're a resident of whatever part of the planet they want to be in at the same time because they have that like money to be able to move freely. I thought that was a really interesting point <clears throat> talking about this and like, you know, just how access to money allows you to physically be in different places whenever you want. Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast where this woman was talking about she became a wealth manager for, like, the uber wealthy. Yeah. And she was like, one time I was asked to just get on a jet at last minute, and she's like, oh, fuck, I left my passport. And they're like, you don't need that. And she's like, but we're flying to another country. They're like, they're not going to check your passport. Yeah. Sure enough, they did not. Yeah. Because she was flying with a billionaire. Right. They're not checking people's passports. No. Um, You know, so all these stories come out, the Panama Papers 2016. We kind of talked about this, how, like, it wasn't the huge, like, ah, that it should have been. A lot of papers and media outlets decided not to cover anything from the Panama Papers at all. They were like, it's too complicated, too messy. I'm not really sure where the stories are. Our advertisers might. <laughs> Maybe that. Also, some people were apprehensive about moving forward because the source was anonymous, and there could be different reasons. They're like, what if I can't verify it? But more than that, some people were like, I can't trust that I can keep this source safe. And there was this idea that this was dangerous. If people cared, it would be very dangerous, you know? Um, and people were right to think that it could be dangerous. Whistleblowers in particular often face prison time or worse. And... It could be something, you know, that if people had their secrets revealed, they would be angry and they would want you dead or out of the way. 
Meanwhile, Mossack Fonseca sent a nine-page response to ICIJ, that international journalism group, and they said, we have not once in nearly 40 years of operations been charged with criminal wrongdoing. And they were right. That's because, as the New York Times explains, it is not illegal in many cases to have offshore bank accounts, but they are used in some instances by wealthy individuals and criminals to hide money and business transactions and to avoid paying taxes. So, you know, it was dangerous. It was dangerous for the sources. It was dangerous for the reporters. And they were right. It wasn't even really illegal. So it didn't hit with this huge punch. Like, look at all these people being criminals. Going there was jail. criminal activity, but it was kind of tangential. It's like, well, they set up the accounts to do the criminal activity. But, like, the criminal activity would be the bigger story than just mm -hmm. the accounts. So, you know, despite this, there were some results from the Panama Papers being released. Um... There was total restitution of $1.2 billion in tax revenue that ended up getting paid to 23 governments, national governments. Uh, Iceland's prime minister had to resign. We talked about that. Um, one guy, uh, Harold Joachim Vondergoltz, was convicted of wire and tax fraud and money laundering and a bunch of other crimes related to the Panama Papers being released. Uh, he was sentenced to four years in U.S. federal prison. Pakistan did dismiss their prime minister. Uh, we talked about that one earlier. Some new anti-corruption laws and policies were implemented in dozens of countries. And criminal charges were filed by the U.S. Justice Department against four Mossack Fonseca associates on charges including wire fraud, tax fraud, and money laundering. In March 2018, Mossack Fonseca terminated operations, totally closed down, but they did agree to continue working with authorities in any ongoing investigations into the Panama Papers. So the two main lawyers, Mossack and Fonseca, they were acquitted in a Panamanian money laundering case in 2022 after the judge ruled the prosecution failed to prov prove that the firm handled or tried to hide illicit funds from Brazil. Remember the Brazil thing. Mm. The two lawyers are, however, among dozens of defendants in a second case that's related to the Panama Papers for what's just called crimes against the public economic order. And that hearing date is set for December of this year. Mm. So Germany also has issued an arrest warrant for Mossack Fonseca lawyers, the main ones, Jürgen Mossack and Ramon Fonseca, for tax evasion and operating a criminal organization. But because of Panama's extradition laws, which we talked about, they will not be handed over to German officials. And in Panama, they face charges connected to the Panama Papers uh, issues, as well as bribery with a Brazilian company, right, which they spent two months in jail before being bonded out. That was the one we talked about already. The Biggest, though, and most tragic thing is the thing I said at the beginning of the episode, there would be a death, and it would mm -hmm. be sad. And this is the biggest thing to come from the Panama Papers, and it is the murder of reporter Daphne Caruano Galicia mm -hmm. in Malta. Mm -hmm. So uh, Daphne Galicia was an independent journalist. She was a blogger, but she had a really, really popular political blog. She was killed in a car bomb near her home in October 2017 after reporting on the Panama Papers. Whoa. <clears throat> she was really active uh, in calling for transparency and reporting on criminal activity and corruption of key politicians in Malta all the time. So when this came out, she really took it and ran with it. And she had worked as a journalist for 30 years covering different types of stories like this, right? So she ends up then, yes, publishing allegations linking then Maltese Prime Minister Joseph Muscat to the Panama Papers uh, before she was murdered. And after her murder, Galicia's son saw an independent public inquiry into his mother's death. And Muscat himself approved that inquiry shortly before he ended up resigning from office for his own involvement. 
The inquiry heard from dozens of witnesses, including investigators, politicians, and journalists, and in its final 437-page report, it said the state had created an atmosphere of impunity generated by the highest echelons. It cited an unwarranted closeness between big business and government, something I think we could learn from here in the U.S., mm-hmm. and the report also made recommendations to improve laws and better protect journalists in Malta, like Galicia. One of the three men who eventually was accused of murdering Galicia pled guilty and was jailed for 15 years, and he said that if he had known who he was paid to kill at the time, he would have asked for more money to do it. Because he didn't realize it was a political hit. Whoa. <clears throat> so we still don't know who hired these three people, but it's very obvious that it was intentional because of something to do with the Panama Papers. Whoa. And she was killed, and it is very sad. Um, I think something really interesting is today when you visit the Panama Papers website with all the data, there's a banner at the top that says, it's legal, and that's the problem. Wow. Yeah, and I I think that's really telling. Like, capitalism's inevitable extension is creating a business out of making sure rich people get to hoard their riches. And then it makes other people rich for figuring out how to offer that service. Yeah. And it is, most places, yes, legal. And that is why people don't care. And why you have some people like Donald Trump, for example, being like, yeah, like, I evade taxes because I'm a smart businessman that takes advantage of every loophole granted to me. But I think really the thing that people don't understand Something that we mentioned before, it's like, it's legal because the people with power are making the laws. It's because the wealthy are controlling our governments. And it's kind of a back and forth, like, that revolving door thing we talked about in our lobbying episode. The rich, the powerful, the heads of corporations, the heads of government, they often trade places multiple times throughout their careers. They'll go back and forth between the private sector and the public sector. They'll write their own laws while in the private sector that then they pass on to buddies they have deals with in the public sector all of this is done to create an environment where they're allowed to get away with this kind of stuff the loopholes are there by design basically yeah i mean it's like to me it's like this the setup of the government when i was like in elementary school and learned that originally only uh white landowning males could vote mm-hmm. i i it shattered i not shattered me but i was just like Oh, so it's not, it's not fair. It's it's, it's never been fair. So it's just like, oh, so this is like organized crime. This is like the mafia. Yeah. It's the few rich people who get to do buddy-buddy deals and make up their own rules. And they play by different rules than the rest of us. And kill the people and kill people on the side. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know what I think about a lot when I think about this is, remember that show Boardwalk Empire? Yeah, but I never watched it, and I kind of thought you were going to say House of Cards, because they kill the reporter who gets in their way. Oh, I never... Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's in our pop culture, and I think a little bit of it is just to be like, yeah, that's just... I think I think our culture has extremely normalized corruption, and yeah. extremely normalized a kind of nihilistic view that shit can't change. And also, like... The way our society is set up, like, I think the only thing that could really get people, like, in power rocking is, I think they really are afraid of, like, a general, like, kind of like, uh, Francian, you know, like, French-style revolution. Oh, they were lighting cops on fire on May Day. That was cool. Yeah, like, well, it's like, I think if, uh, here's the thing. Is if everyone, if something happened and everyone got so fucking fed up that everyone just stopped working, shit would change. Shit would go down real fucking fast. 
general strike. But it's like, how are you going to do that when you have to pay bills? You got to take care of your kids. You got to feed your pets. You got to like, everyone's fucking tired here. Every, like I, you know, when, you know, especially when I was working retail, I go home from work. I want to put on TV and I want to go to sleep. Right. You know, I mean, unless, or I want to go out, you know, it's just, it's really fucking hard. And not, and I don't think that people don't care. I think that people do care and feel a little like helpless, hopeless about it. Right. Or because of the way that our culture is, people just don't have the time to learn more. And the way that our media is set up, it's in the service of the rich. So people get fed misinformation. It's really easy. You know, we all oh see my God. it. Like, yeah, I mean, I've seen this in myself. There's, I tell you this all the time. There'll be things that I'm like, this is real. And then like, Years later, I'll, like, read that it was some fucking PSYOP campaign by the FBI or the CIA, and I'm like, holy shit, I believe that. And, you know, we don't teach media literacy, and I only know this because I literally have a degree in journalism that I do not use. Maybe I'm using it. Who knows? Yeah. I have a degree in digital media communications. Yes. Which is funny. I'm using my degree, Mom. You are. Happy Mother's Day. See? Um, (laughs) We're, um, but it's like, I think... The thing is, if if that's the reason why I think we do not have a welfare state here, because if people, you know, you see during COVID, yeah, that is why we do not have COVID funds anymore, because people are at home, they have money, they're like, wait a minute, I have time to go out and protest. It's I true. have money coming in. It's totally I can, like, true. sit on my phone and learn about shit. And it's like, it's all connected to capitalism, because it is about the few people who think that they are God's chosen people, like, don't get me fucking wrong. That is what they think. Controlling the 99% of the planet. And if you have a media system that is like very, very strategic, it is very easy, you know? And if you have no wealth, you know, no. And I say welfare system is like a safety net. If people, if people had housing, food and shelter, a lot of pe- like a lot more people would not put up with injustice like this. it's true i you mean know? yeah we did see that when people had time off and were getting paid by the government yeah they were more politically active and, and it's not that people don't care it's that people are tired and, and the day-to-day system of trying to survive it beats people down it wears and people you can't, down and it makes me mad when people blame like people just don't care it's like People care. People are fucking tired. People are tired. Exactly. And it's like, you can't, it's like, it's hard because it's like, I, you know, I am not a super smarty. My hope is that maybe some sort of like doing mutual aid will build up systems. So when shit hits the fan, like when there needs to be a general strike or something happens is we can still have food on the table and have our medicines and childcare and still be okay, right. even if <clears throat> shit is hitting the fan. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think... Not in a libertarian way. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, mutual aid is not... I don't think mutual no, aid is No, but I think some people are just like, we don't need the government. We just handle it or, you know, no. like that type of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, yeah, I think that... I don't know. I think the Panama Papers thing was really interesting to me because I think... I think the idea that it was legal and it shouldn't be, I think that was lost on a lot of people. And I also think it was just interesting seeing the journalists be like, how do we make people care about this? This is major. But 
it's hard. And I think complicated stories are harder for people to follow. And the whole point about this is that it's like rushing nesting doll style. It's like this corporation and this corporation and this corporation. It's designed to be so difficult to follow that you're not really sure what the point is or and, what's happening. And also, like, you know, one of my critiques of, like, some, you know, journalism stuff reporting on really complicated stories is you have to imagine journalism does not pay a lot. So right. Who is being able to have the privilege of getting these jobs in journalism that don't pay a lot? It's like very academic. And sometimes academia does not translate down to like the person, like the everyday people who just like have to work jobs and don't have fucking time to read up on everything. Yeah, you got to make things easy for people to understand in short spurts. And some people are good at that. But, you know, it's hard. And, and sometimes it's hard, too, because you're like, you can't you can't understand this in a sentence. There is no soundbite here. The soundbite is that rich people are hiding their money for you, from you so they can continue to hoard wealth and buy politicians. Yeah, and I think, like, I think if you talk about this, if you can talk about this stuff in a way that's, like, appealing and fun and not, like, totally helpless and, yeah. like, like... I, I think the culture is changing. I see it with Gen Z. I see it just everywhere where people, even like in, you know, I think about all the, you know, media in the 90s. People are like, that's fucked. Like now we're like, that's fucked up to talk about Monica Lewinsky that way. Yeah, like, that's true. You, things do get better. It is not hopeless. And I think things a lot of that better. has to do is like, yeah, the culture. And that's why there's such a weird war on the right against wokeism because, or, you know, whatever that fucking means. Like, yeah. I don't know what it fucking means. But, like... Neither do they, make, according to the yeah, interview that went make, viral on Twitter. Well, to me, it's just, like, to make things, like, you know, that everyone deserves to be taken care of and everyone needs to not be a fucking dick to each other. Yeah. That's all it is. And, honestly, I think most people would fucking agree with that. I think so, too. So, I think that's the episode on the Panama Papers. <laughs> Everybody deserves to live and don't be a dick to each other. Yeah, and being annoying is not a crime. And being annoying is not a crime. Okay, that's it. We did it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. And like always, all of our sources will be in the show description if you just scroll down a bit. Uh, our Patreon is currently starting at $2 per month, but if that's too much money for you, we totally get it, and we're just happy you're here.